1: got a, a man who used to be in a gang okay calm down he's now a public speaker he's friendly it's fine
0: I think you're the person who uh, it sort of worries about that more than anyone else <laughs> anyone else <laughs> think was like Paul oh, great to meet you. Yeah. For yeah. and Jordy's like oh my god
1: no how many tweets did we get about Paul I'd
0: say it's the, one of the most tweets we've ever had about really? getting yeah. a guest on because okay. we had um we had a guy who, who went to prison in America and was on death row right. and after that a lot of people I said,
1: think I sent you the link for that one yeah said you
0: should
2: get Paul Hannaford on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I do expect a lot of kids. So I guess, obviously, you know, um, yeah, they've heard my story and probably thought, yeah, get me on.
0: Yeah. I think someone had, a lot of kids had them in you were in their school. Yeah. You know hey, guys, just going to stop the podcast there just for one second to let you know that this episode of the True Geordie podcast is sponsored by betonbrazil.com. It's the new betting site for all sports punters with great odds, markets and offers. Listeners to this podcast can now get a free £10 when they deposit £10 just by using the promo code TRUE10. one Just visit betonbrazil.com and enter the promo code TRUE10 when you deposit your £10 and you'll get £10 free. Also look out for our daily happy hour offers between 5 and 6 p.m. You can sign up at betonbrazil.com. Over 18s only. Offer is for new customers only. Terms apply. Betting should be fun. So please, gamble responsibly.
2: That's that's, 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 that's my full-time job now. I speak to tens of thousands of kids every year. 50,000 a year, yeah. Wow. I'm so busy. on a
0: daily basis, you're just going in schools, just yeah. kids. I
2: don't like children, to be honest, no. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, uh, today I've been in the school. I've done two assemblies this morning with 450 kids, you know, and next week. Averaging about two, 3,000 kids a week, you know. I'm wow. um, a busy guy all over the country, yeah.
0: What if, imagine, I mean, I used to go to assembly. I was quite tired, but I tried yeah. my best to listen.
2: Yeah, oh no, they listen. You're a pin drop, you not know. We get a lot of fainters because I show all the injuries of, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of blood and guts and i all the kids beforehand because when I was in hospital, had doctors had a lot of pictures of all my you know, for addiction and knife crime and that and the stabbing. So, what we do is we show the images, but we warn them first. We get a lot of fainters. Yeah. We get more yeah. teachers fainting kids, I think. Yeah. I was so- looking
1: at his website this morning. Just a yeah. plug for you Paul, is it Paul Hannaford yeah. dot com. PaulHendyford.com, yeah. That's it. And I was just about to have breakfast. And Now I used to work in a butcher's when I was younger, so I'm cast iron stomach. But even I was a bit like, might just leave that bacon sandwich an <laughs> extra ten minutes. Yeah. So what
0: kind of injuries are
1: you talking here? About? I
2: mean, well, uh, through 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 uh, through my through addiction, you know, we'll probably start you know a little bit about where it started. But uh, I was an IV user, yeah. And what happened was I started injecting heroin, and and I used to obviously use lots of little needles. I'll show you. I swear I'll show, I'll show yeah, the you, kids. Know. Yeah. Can it's we like
1: get a, a camera on this, if possible, this if you just take a break? Because these are I mean, well worth it. From... my iPhone? If you it's could. Really if you could use your iPhone. because
2: um... I started off using uh, needles like this. Because what happened was I smoked heroin for, for uh, two years before I started injecting it. And it got to the point where I started injecting it in my hands. Right. Well, within six months, every single vein in my hand disappeared. But well, we got veins all over our body. So, obviously, then it was like veins in my neck, then they died, then it was veins in my penis, then it was veins in, in, in my feet. And it got to a point within two years, I've mostly destroyed most of my veins. But what happened was then, I started smoking crack cocaine. Yeah. But you can actually inject crack. But what happens is actually crack cocaine... Is, is actually cocaine powder. But what they do is you can either mix it with a thing called bicarbonate soda, which makes it into crack. Or is that am- why you put it on a spoon? You put it in a spoon, yeah. Or ammonia. Why you do that? Because what happens is it's called free basing. It's right. an American thing. So if you get a gram of cocaine and you put it into a spoon, you've got 10 points to a gram. So when you put the bicarb or the ammonia with it, you lose probably whatever the rubbish is in it. They call it the free in the base. You got I me? Mean? So you might be left with half a gram. That means you've got rid of half a gram of absolute rubbish, which is cut with. Now you're left with 50% of pure cocaine. And what you're meant to do is most people smoke crack, but I see a guy in a crack den one night injecting it, and I tried it, and it was an incredible feeling. Yeah. And the what was, the ammonia used to make my veins thrombosed, and them needles ain't very very strong. And I remember one day I was in a crack den, and I, and I put the needle in, I used it about six, seven times, and I ripped it out, and the metal bit completely snapped off. In your arm. In my arm. And I, I could see it. It didn't hurt me. I moved my arm about. I couldn't actually feel it. But I could see it under the muscle. And I remember getting a pair of tweezers, trying to dig it out, and it, and it wouldn't come out. And I left it. I just left it in there. Anyway, three days later, my arm swelled up. It went bright red and black. So it yeah. got infected. And I remember going to the hospital when the doctor came out of the x-ray and he looked at me as if I was a lunatic. He went, why, why, why you left it three days? And I said, I always get money for drugs, you know, because I was out robbing every day. And um, I operated. And when I woke up after the operation, he said to me, we've left it in there." And it's still in there today, you know, they because it was too, it'd gone too deep and had messed about with uh, the nerves and that and it could have, yeah. it could I could have lost a feeling in my arm. So as you said, we left it in there and it's probably still there today, you know. So, I
1: mean, could, where else would it go? <laughs> well, might you out, your, it
2: might come out of my poo, I don't know.
1: <laughs> could you get your camera out for a second? Yeah, Because yeah, you showed me this outside. On well, my legs. But it, how long have you been clean now? I've been clean 10, uh, ten years, uh, five months. So this is 10 years, five months. Can you just show... Oh, yeah, my legs, yeah. Your legs, because considering that? how long it's been, it's quite amazing. They're
2: still bleeding, that. Wow. all scarred up. I'll show you a picture of my iPad. That was all fully open. That was all down to the bone. Right. And this one still bleeds. And I'll show you a picture of my iPad, so I still have to dress it two or three times a day. I'm on medication yeah. the rest of my life. So I've got 12 blood clots trapped in my groin. Yeah. So you
0: need blood thinning, basically.
2: I'm on warfarin the rest of my life, yeah. I've blood test every month. And then what? this leg here eventually healed. they are going to cut them both off, so this one is a uh, th- that was all open, that's healed up. And why was that open? Because what happened was I got infections through injection of groin because right after using that all my veins had died. So what happened was it got to the point where the doctor, they operated, and I, he said, you're going to die. Stop injecting crack. And I said to him, I can't stop. So what I'd done was he, he told me that the last vein to me injecting, well, in our groin here, all of us have a vein called a femoral artery. Yeah. And what it is, a tube that runs around two veins. One of them's an artery, one of is a venous vein. So one's dark blood, one's pink blood. You cannot inject into an artery. You have a heart attack. Yeah. So what i was, the, the problem was the vein is that deep inside the groin. Well, that needle was too small. So what I had to do was I'd start using one of these. Jesus. And what I had to do was I was putting herring and crack in it together. They call it speedballing. So you cook your herring up in a spoon, you put your crack in it, you draw it up, and you have to wait for it to cool down because it'll, it'll burn you. Once it's cooled down, you put it through, but you have to miss the artery. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's low-level lighting in the crack then, you have to be really careful because if you inject it into the artery, you're in trouble. Yeah. You could die. So, what, But what you're meant to do is you're meant to use them once, chuck them away, and then use a fresh one because they get blunt quite quickly. Yeah. But at this point, my drag habit is 500 pounds a day. So I'm having to, the way I get my money, I'm a shoplifter, bulk shoplifter, and I'm prolific. So I go to the apartment stores at Harrods House of Fraser Selvages and I nick around two grand of stuff a day. Wow. I get a quarter for it. And, you know, I was pretty good at it because, you know, I stole lots of stuff, but that was the addiction side of things. How
0: did you do that considering the way that you look?
2: I mean, you're oh, not, no, not oh, no. an unstriking person. No, you know, but I mean? was skinny at this point. But what you've got memories when you go into a department store, Nine times out of ten, I've got a mini cab outside. Yeah. yeah, you know, I just get cabs everywhere. Right. So I go in, pick up the rack of stuff, I walk out the door. The stuff's sold before I even stole it. I've got orders. I've got loads yeah. of people fences, and I take it to them. And you know, so, so you've got a regular. thing Oh, I've got five yet. or six guys who fight over it because they're buying the stuff off of me for five hundred. Yeah, it's two thousand pounds worth. They've already got it sold because it's pre-ordered, so they're making five hundred pounds out of me as well. Mm. I mean, one guy, bought a house out of me, apparently worth half a million pound because he so much money out of me. Yeah, because you know that you know I'm I'm having three and a half grand a week to so fund my habit. But what happened was with this, you meant, so now my habits up to about four five hundred pounds a day. I inject myself now fifty times a day. Yeah. With hair and a crack. Use that once, chuck it away, use a new one. But most days all I had was one needle. Yeah. So I'll get it, wash it out, get it, wash it out. And it got to the point where the last 10 hits of the evening, that needle now is so bumped and barbed. So as I'm forcing it in my groin, as I'm pulling it out, the veins actually coming out of the hole in my groin and the blood is squirting because the arteries, because you've gone through the arteries, so you've got about two foot of blood squirting in the air. Yeah. So at this point, I have to put pressure on it and put like a towel, you know what I mean? And, 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 and put pressure to stop it bleeding. And by doing that, eventually I got the flocks in my legs. Right. And in the bottom of my legs started to break down because of the little needles from months before from picking scabs. And anything in the body that needs to heal needs good blood flow. Mm. But I've got blood clots now. Yeah, There's no good blood
1: flow. So, so um, you're, you're basically at a stage where you're in a, a complete mess at this point. So how did this all begin?
2: And it all begin It all began many years ago, born down the road at East Ham. Mm. Yeah. And uh, growing up as a little boy, I was fascinated with uh, West Ham United. Mm. All right, That was my team.
1: And that right. made you want to take drugs. That makes perfect no. sense. Because <laughs> yeah. they are <laughs> no, a frustrating team. Yeah, they Do are. You know, yeah, they especially are, right now. Yeah. This was
2: before Gold and Sullivan, before yeah. everyone else. Yeah, we had Billy Bonds in and yeah. Lampard and that. Yeah, mm. but, um, far away. so yeah. So I was fascinated with West Ham and and I started playing football. Mm-hmm. I wasn't... Professional, but I was good. And I was fascinated with football and football practice, you know, make first team. If you'd have come to my school when I was 10 or 11, I said, What are you going to do? I said, I want to play football for West Ham, you know, it's every yeah. three minutes to be a footballer. And that was it. Life was okay. And in secondary school, things changed, the dynamics, year seven, and then got to year eight. And uh, somehow along the line, I got involved with some boys in the year above me, and, and cannabis was brought out. You know,
0: How did you get involved with Was that just sort it of. It like was just on the
2: way it. from school and bumped into them, and one of them did down my street. I didn't know the other one too well. So, you know, you want to. They, they were the in crowd kids, the year yeah, yeah. above me. So you want to be friends with them, don't you? It's yeah. human nature. Cannabis come out. It wasn't weed then; it was a resin years yeah. ago. You know, like a red seal or a black seal, and you burn it in. But it's still the same effect, I guess, as, as cannabis. And I, and I tried it, and never thought I would. And the problem was, I liked it. That was a problem, and I couldn't stop.
1: So were you? You say you were obsessed with football. Yeah. Was were you like? Was it all you thought about all day, every day?
2: Any opportunity to kick a ball, I kick so- it.
1: So once you realised you enjoyed cannabis, did Lots that was that obsessive nature just yeah. transferred into probably. cannabis? Probably yeah,
2: because my, well, I got chucked out of my football team. Mm-hmm. I don't have football patch anymore.
1: Was that, the Did instead. they find out you'd been doing yeah. it, and yeah. that's why? I don't think they, off they, they off found the out so much.
2: They might, have, they might have got uh, you know, with the, through one of the other boys that was in my team that you know I'm been chucked because I got chucked out of mainstream schools. So my behaviour, right? So within right. a year, what was your behaviour? just robbing stuff from school and then, right, you know, okay. just just any and just not, just not attending really. But were you robbing because you wanted to buy cannabis? Money. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah, of course I did. So, yeah. you and was it quite expensive? Not really, in fact, it's expensive. I was quite in smoke, I was smoking quite a lot. It escalated, it got more and more, but then I started to experiment with other drugs because I got chucked out of mainstream school. So, within a year of smoking cannabis, I've been chucked out of two mainstream schools and my football team. So, now no other school will touch me, yeah, because my, my CV doesn't great, yeah. When I'm at school, I'm robbing. When I'm when I, I,
1: the, the thing is, it wasn't like you were, um. A dumb kid, by by any means, because no. in order to be as prolific as you were yeah. at stealing, that takes. You're saying you had a system set up. What were you stealing?
2: Really? What from school? In there? Yeah. Anything like anything like electrical computers? I, I, I even tried to rob a teacher's purse once. You know, and got yeah. caught in the classroom. So straight away, it was straight straight exclusion. It was just it was just petty stuff because I didn't need a great deal of money, but because of my behaviour around it, I
1: was a nuisance. Did you, so, were you taught uh, by your parents, like, um, you have to stick in at school and, you know, it's really, yeah, were you my set dad, rules my, and my, boundaries? My,
2: my, my dad at the time, my dad's was about 11, but <coughs> at the time, before that, you know, like, like my dad was extremely strict and, he, you know, well-educated and all that. So, so you're
1: uh, saying when you were in year eight, which is when you were 12, yeah. that's when all this sort of started. Yeah. Did, did the separation from your parents had anything to do with that I'm, or I'm, did it not affect
2: no, you? No, I think, I think, I think... That day that I picked up the cannabis, whether my dad would have been around or not, uh, I, I still made that decision. I was just curious. Um, I wanted to hang about the in crowd. Mm-hmm. Of you know, it's just human nature, isn't it? As a little boy, to be part of that. And as I said, once I started smoking it, it took a, you know a few weeks. But then I obviously became quite dependent, and I wanted it all the time. But the worst, what happened was when the, when, when the explosion really happened was when I couldn't get into any other mainstream school because my CV didn't look great. No school wants me. I'm a nuisance. Mm-hmm. So they call things called thinker, pupil referral units. They call them centres. And I went there, and it was like a bomb going off because there's about 50 boys there, black, white, mixed race, some girls there, all been chucked out of school for the same reason as me. There. Yeah. So when you put 50 boys or girls in a, <laughs> one in one in one school, small school, it's like, the what well Honestly, it's crazy. And, and so you've got all these egos, these young boys bouncing off each other, and that's where the gang started. You see, because we got chucked out of there. So now at the age of 15. I'm on the street, I've got no qualifications, no education, I'm in a gang. Gang rules were, number one rule being in a gang was carry a knife. Right, Carry it, full stop, you know, and, and and that is the fundamental rule. So now we're carrying knives, but now I'm getting bored with weed. Not that bored with it, I'm having to smoke now, like 50 quid's worth to get as high as I was when I first started smoking it. You know, your tolerance builds up. So now I'm experimenting with other drugs. Now I'm taking uh, acid, amphetamines, a uh, bit of ecstasy, mm-hmm. and that costs more money, so I'm out robbing. And it was just really going along, picking up a conviction. I didn't mind going to jail for a few months, you know, and come back out and amongst my gang. And it got to the point where where I got really in trouble one night. I got, I got kidnapped by some gangsters. One of my gang members had found out there's a property in Essex and he knew someone, knew someone. And this guy kept cash in a briefcase in his wardrobe. So we got the information, went round there, and we, uh, we broke in the property and we found a briefcase. And we went nearby as a school. We busted it open. There was quite a few grand in there, gold watch and uh, some rings. And we took the we took the stuff, but also left in a briefcase was documents, like paperwork. And right. it was no good to us. It was val- no value in it, so we dumped it in the school playground in the drain. So the next two three days, I'm running around, I got all the cash in my pocket, and I ended up, up at the Crawl playing fruit machines. When I was a kid, I used to like playing the fruit machine. Yeah, a hundred pound jackpot. So as I'm playing the fruit machine, <laughs> as I'm playing the fruit machine, uh, three men come in the Crawl. big men, big as yourself. And they come up to me and they go, are you are you playing the field and they dragged drag me out. So straight away now, automatically, I'm thinking, please. Yeah. I was to get arrested by plain clothes, please. Yeah. When we got outside the snow call, there was no police car. There was a plain white van and this big guy got out of it, come up to me and smashed me in the face, knocked me clean out one punch. I woke up in the back of that white van five minutes later, tied up. And I thought, and when I looked, I was petrified, I was fifteen. And I thought, all oh, these men, you know, the police don't do this. And then the van yeah. stopped the <laughs> the van stopped, the van stopped five minutes later, and the back doors of the van opened up and the house directly behind them. Was the house we robbed? Yeah. Three days before. How did they find out it was you? We I'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then and then all of a sudden the guy's got in the back of the van, he looked at me, and he went, listen to me. And he bent down and he looks at me. And he went, and, and he's like tough guys like villains. And he went, no, don't bullshit me. Yeah, don't bullshit me. He said, set a briefcase. He said, Tell me where it is. He said, see the cash and the watch. I ain't bothered about that. He yeah. said, I need them documents back. And there was documents in there. And I remember seeing documents in there, but I thought to myself, he said, give me that battle let you go. But the allergy was if I admit to the briefcase, I would admit it to the burglary. So keep your mouth shut. You know, it was, a, it was a gang rule. Keep your mouth shut. And I kept my mouth shut. And I denied it. I said, weren't me, weren't me, weren't me. Kept me in the van. And then about 20 minutes later, this guy got in the back of the van and he uh, got hold of me and he smashed me to a with a knuckle duster. They'd done my cheekbones, they'd done my jaw. And I was in a terrible state. I couldn't even see. Cheekbones helped very well. But yeah, yeah, they, they, He's they, yeah. has got some crocking cheekbones, But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, and then now I'm in a terrible state. I've wet myself, no toilet, nothing, and they kept coming what back to the. You? I was fifteen, and they get coming back to the van every half hour. Where's the briefing? How frightened were you? I
1: was, oh, terrified! Just, just to was, get a perspective, because yeah. what you're saying, we were talking outside before. Yeah. And- you, that was in the days where there was some proper gangsters. Like, not we're not talking about um, like what there is now, which you know, there's just a lot of lads out there with knaves and yeah. that. Well, like, no, I mean, I, I, we're talking about yeah. like what he, what he's describing is like that snatch. <laughs> no,
2: I'm
0: not
1: joking. We're talking
0: about the kind of the kind of men. That proper seen. villains,
1: I like. proper. Like, so you've been fucking shitting yourself down
2: sort of the, 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 scrapyards. Yeah. So you know, yeah. that's enough said in it. If you're in a scrapyard, you're some. You know, you're some sort of like I don't know.
1: You can get rid of someone pretty quickly. You yeah. have a lot of pigs.
2: Um, I'm not too sure, <laughs> i never got to go, <laughs> got to go. But, but I didn't get far because what happened was it got really late and I kept denying it, kept denying it. And you I'm did pretty, well there then. I've done well, but what happened was it got really late, it got dark and the van started now I'm in the back, I can't go anywhere, yeah, right? And it, and it pulled off. So straight away, automatically, I'm thinking, they'll take me to hospital. They're going to take me to hospital, they're going to kick the back doors <laughs> up and dump me, but they didn't because I know from where I am, the nearest hospital is 10 minutes away. Half hour later, I'm sitting in the back of that van. We've gone the wrong way. Yeah. And they didn't take me to a hospital. They took me to some lake somewhere in Essex. And they dragged me out the back of the van, and they had rope there and, a, and this big weight, and they were going to tie it around my ankles. And he said, "I'm going to drown you. Yeah. You're going to die." Now, whether they were bluffing at this point or not, I don't know. But you know what? I'm not willing to take this risk. And and, and I just I, I was absolutely ter- I said I, I did it. I take it to the briefcase. Yeah. They put me back in the van. They drove me back over to where the briefcase was. And I, I don't pray much, but that night in that van, I was praying. Yeah. And I thought, "Please God, let it still be there." We got there. We went over there. They got a talk. So found the briefcase. Went through the documents. Untied me, let me go. Just drove off. But and I and stood there, yeah. and I stood there, and it was like, it was, it was, you know, it was just a relief. And I think I'm probably like, I cried or what? I was just, And I went back to my mum, and she see the state in my face. And, you know, I, I said I'd be in the gang fight. I didn't tell her I'd been kidnapped and that, you know. But that didn't stop me. Did you keep that to yourself? The, no. Did you tell the other people in your gang? No, I told them, because my gang members see the state of my face. And one of my high-ranking gang members at the time, he went, what happened to your face? I said, you know that house and He went, yeah. I said, the guy kidnapped me. And the first thing he went to me was, "You didn't grasp me up, did you?" I went, "No, of course I didn't." And because of that, I went higher in the gang. I got more respect. It makes sense. Mm. Next day, I'm committing crime again. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that incident would well, it could have,
1: could have won both ways. Or that you could have been like shit scared and never gone back to that yeah. life after that. that. For a lot of people, that would have been enough to say, "Fuck this." That's enough for it's me. It's like, hard,
0: though, to get out of that, isn't it? Because you're, you're completely. No, but, but I'm attached, right? I've attached myself yeah. to
2: this environment. I'm now obsessed, right? Yeah. And then getting out rewarded. Drugs, crime and getting rewarded. You're getting higher up in the gang. Then, that was 15. Three years later, 18, it's no longer going in parks. It's no longer going in people's sheds. We're old enough to get in pubs. Yeah. Now, the crime changes to credit card fraud. Now, I'm drinking in pubs. We're meeting lots of people. And we used to have people that knew people that worked in the post office, postmen that delivered mail. But what they do is, then years ago, it wasn't chip and pin. If you were due a card in December, you they send it, in, it. They send you? it in November. Right. So what happens is, they have to sign for it. So now what happens is, the postman's coming down after his round with a envelope, you know, full of credit cards, and we buy them. And you go out and we started doing credit card fraud. And most of the people we were in and met when we were doing a credit card fraud, they, they were people that worked for businesses. So they just swiped it through their thing and yeah. it went through. So it was really difficult to get caught really, you know, for, because the person you're doing the goods for, you know, your guy's got to say a tire a tyre factory or, or, or an MOT place. So you go in, he puts through a grams worth of tires. He do not give you the tire, he gives you 500 quid. Yeah. These money's banked because it's gone for a PDQ machine. Yeah. You got me? So if you've got six or seven people doing that for you, you can get a nick to a three grand a day. Yeah. So the amount of money I was having as a 19-year-old boy, you know, like I lived in a three-bedroom house, I even had a personal driver because I didn't drive. So I bought a guy a car, one of my gang members, and he drove me about committing to doing credit card fraud. And were you, would you describe yourself as a gangster at that time? Not a fact as a gangster because what I was, I was fascinated with gangsters. I was drinking in a pub where there's lots of well-known villains.
0: Where? Uh, in Essex. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, and what it was, I looked and I was fascinated with these men that were pulling up in their Bentleys and their, their Range Rovers, you know, and there's all old-time villains. And, you know, I'm an 18-year-old boy and I'm rubbing shoulders with these guys, you know, and I'm getting myself a, a Rolex watch and a little pinky diamond, you know. And I, yeah, I was fascinated with it. Did you chat to them? Were they yeah, like oh, no, bit, you, were Yeah, bit of a normal no. to you? I was, were oh, oh, you sitting around the drinks with them? You'd buy drinks, you know, buy you, drinks with each other. were you scared
0: about that or was that somewhere you wanted to be? Because no. I know if I walked into that pub...
2: I, I wouldn't sit down and sort of be like, you're right, mate. You no, drink. but what you've got memories, right? Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've sort of been accepted, invited to the company. Yeah, because I drink in there and I'm a little bit of a thief, toe rag, you know, they've obviously accepted me because, you know, you can't just walk into an environment with, with with a load of gangsters and villains. You know, they're going to be suspect who you are. But where obviously people know me from old and I grew up, you know, you was creditable. Did you ever have a drink with
0: the guy who you robbed his house?
2: No. 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 Not no, at all. That would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been interesting, yeah. yeah. But um but no, so, so that was that, that was it. That's now I'm now 18, 19, I'm drinking in pubs, I'm immaculate. Every day of the time, <laughs> I've got shirt trousers and and, and thingy, I'm at doing credit card fraud. Sometimes I need to look like I have a few quid and and, and, I, and I like the way I look. Um I'm getting drunk and stoned every day of the week. I'm immaculate, you know, I'm as, I'm you know, not so as big as you, I'm 18 and half stone. You know, I had nice hair, I should brill cream, I should think I'd probably bugs him alone, but you know and, and at this point, I'm okay. Yeah, with life.
1: Mm. And then... Did, did you say that... Did You you said you got locked up quite a bit. Yeah. That never deterred you either. You were just like, it's just part of the job almost. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, because
2: what happens was I wasn't doing big sentences because, yeah. you know, I was only committing like really technically petty crime. Petty crimes, so yeah. I didn't mind going behind the door for a few months. I'll come out and I'll be back to the gang. But, you know, it just got to a point where I honestly thought at the age of 19, 20, this is how I was going to live my life. Mm. I was going to have a nice few hours I was gonna do this, do that, and I was gonna be happily ever after and you know and, and just plod along in life. Were you happy? Yeah, I think I was yeah. to a point. I'm not as fat happy as a point of there was a little bit of fear going on with the gang stuff and all that and the thing, but at a point where I, there's nothing else I wanted to do. There's nothing else I could do. Did you know anything else? No, yeah. There's nothing else I could do, is there? Mm. Because now I'm in this environment, yeah, right, of of drugs and crime and being in a gang. When you went into prison, were you
0: somewhat protected because you were part of a gang on the outside? Not really. So, so because you were just an individual. You go you, you
2: go into jail and you know familiar faces. You see people off the street and hello, and you you, you start knocking about at people from your manor. Yeah. When you go into jails, you've got probably North London boys knocking about at each other, East London boys knocking about at each other, Essex boys. And that's what it's like is in prison.
0: Is there rivalry or
2: do they... I like, it's, not, it's not like American jails. I mean, you get gangs in America jails because obviously men, men get life sentences, they get life sentences. So it's probably yeah. a lot of things like
1: right American gangs are different because they are like, uh, like, for example, the Bloods and that. It's a huge, it. huge, huge, huge area that that covers.
0: Oh, yeah, there's all LA and those are mm-hmm. very different cities. But you... and. I guess that sounds to me and to everyone else who's watching. They probably think that sounds like quite a glamorous lifestyle because that's been that, you know that's essentially the movie of a movie uh, like the, the plot of a movie like Snatch or something like yeah, that. Yeah, of
2: course it is because as I said, there's there's not much consequence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you hadn't gotten to the stage where you were committing enough of a bad crime to yeah. to get that. But...
2: Yeah, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, going to go and get you know like a massive sentence because I'm dealing kilos of drugs. I was just a drug user. I needed money to maintain my drug and alcohol habit. So I committed things like, you know, just a bit of theft, a bit of credit yeah. card fraud. But, you know, at the time, I was earning vast amounts of money. As quick as I got it, as quick as I spent it. Yeah. You know, uh, you know it, it was just, and I slowly, I didn't realise, I was slowly de- becoming dependent. And it got to a point where I went to a party one evening and uh, one of my old gang members knew someone else and heroin come out. I remember this guy pulled out, I'll show you here. He pulled out a piece of metal tin full like this and, uh, and yeah and what it was he started to burn the foil and suck up a smoke for a tube and I knew what this was I knew what this was it's a uh, he's chasing a dragon right. and uh, and he offered it to me yeah. and I politely told him to stick out his bottom you know why because I'd seen her in addicts so straight away I associate that now with begging outside shops, needles rotten teeth because that's what
1: well happens. weakness is what I, I think of when I think of a heroin addict I think of like the frailness that comes the frailness. with it And so in your you're coming from a place of strength in your head All right, of so you don't want to end up in that situation no I'm what not- was the worst thing drug wise that you'd you'd sampled before this point no, like I've a had a few bad
2: tricks in, I had some bad tricks. So I used to go out picking mushrooms, uh, magic mushrooms. They call them the Liberty Cap. So I'd go out in the morning, pick loads of mushrooms, dry them out, and then you boil them, make tea of them. And I had a few bad tricks on that yeah. hospital. So
1: that was my worst experience, really. So you um, hadn't, had you taken cocaine before this point? I
2: wasn't over keen on cocaine. Yeah. I'd have a few lines now and again, but it wasn't my thing. I just like alcohol, cannabis, opium, and 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 a
1: bit of acid. What well, it sounds you, like quite harmless. N- by comparison Gosh, uh, to heroin, so like you drew the line at that. You were like, I'm not fucking. Yeah, going because there.
2: I'd, I I've seen what heroin had done people. Mm-hmm. Heroin wasn't a glamorous grub. Heroin was scumbag, junkie, scumbag. Yeah. Simple. You take heroin, you're scumbag. Because we used to see them, and we used to, you, you'd see them, and they were foul. They were dirty. They were. Fil- I'm not like that. I'm immaculate. I change my clothes twice a day. I'm 18 stone. No, you know, I'm jelly hair, and I'm, I'm 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 you know, I've got a bit of obsession around, look. I'm immaculate. Mm. I'm not like that. I don't want to live like that. So it.
1: how did you bridge the gap from being that person to finally trying heroin? Curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity. I've been taking loads well, of drugs. Because you said you, you. people tend to be a bit of an extremist yeah. who do this sort of thing. My dad has got a lot of the similar tendencies and in the, in the similar history to yourself. Okay. And, and he, he always felt like he had to to push the boundaries a bit and go a bit further, yeah. and everything he did. Yeah. And was that sort of the need? You said that for cannabis, you you need to smoke like 50 quids worth. To, yeah. So you, you just eventually moved through the, you the drugs. To move through Yeah, you ah. experiment,
2: don't you? But people who took ease went on the street begging me no teeth. People who smoked cannabis, I didn't see them on the streets begging yeah. me no teeth. People who took other drugs, I didn't see them injecting themselves. But I associate this with needles, filthy dirty, mm-hmm. yeah, because I've seen it. But got to this gaff, got drunk. Now I'm a little bit vulnerable because I'm drunk. I'm not myself.
1: Was a few years between that point because you said that.
2: Oh no, when I got off with it the first no, that was a night. What were you? Te- yeah, you do te- yeah. that night because yeah, I night. assumed that you. Said, no, I've seen off. it. I've seen it before, but yeah. I-, I told the guy I didn't want it. But then hours later, I'm drunk. I've got a few pills in me and just curiosity yeah. and. I tried Fucking it, mad. yeah, and it's just my head where I was at the time, yeah, because I'm thinking I'm going to be okay. I just, you know, just a little bit
1: because you're going to be different, to everyone else, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Mm. You know, my ego was telling me I'm special and different. And
1: what, and what they say is, when you tried other drugs, it's you know, you sort of you can kind of equate it in your head of, Oh well, I've done this, I've done that. Heroin can't be that much different, but. To my knowledge, it's the easiest drug to get addicted to. Like, it's almost... Some people say it's the first hit you're addicted from that day on. So what's that feeling? Did that, was that like that for you? Or how did it feel the first time? First time I had it, if I'm honest, I'm not trying to glamorise it. Mm. No, but I, just, I just want the honest truth.
2: Probably all the drugs I'd taken before that, it blew them all clean out of the water. Yeah. It made me feel... It took, it took any worry, any fear, any concern I had about anything... It took him away. And it took me to this place for hours where it was just like, it was like being in the best dream ever, but being conscious mm. of this dream, you know, being fully aware of this ain't a dream. This is real. And were you talking to other people? Were you conscious during that? I was conscious at there? the time. You, you get a thing called a gouching, where you're and that, you know. because it lasted watch- 12 hours because, you know, you, this, this stays in the system quite a long time. So next day I'm still stoned. And it was like, wow. But then I didn't did want my gang to know that I'd taken it, yeah. But... Then I started taking it. So now I'm not taking cannabis as much. I'm not drinking much alcohol. I'm sneaking out. I'm buying bags of heroin. I'm going into the pub with a gang. I'm smoking in the
1: toilet. And in waiting, what? Were you addicted straight away? Do you feel like I feel uh, like I feel like I feel like from the first day I did. You wanted I it knew again. I was going to have it again straight away. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And you were a bit ashamed of it. I was ashamed, yeah, because
2: because I, I, I I'm not me. Heroin addict, it never never. I'm immaculate. I'm smart. I'm intelligent. So I thought. And now I've got to hide it from the gang. So I'm not going out of them as much now. I'm getting invited out. I'm not going out of them as much. So they're starting to be a little bit curious and so. But now I'm losing weight. Now it's one thing you can't hide. Yeah, I'm 18 stone, mm. and I lost within a year, well over three stone. Wow. Yeah, I've stopped and do you eating. Look the same? I mean, no, You look so the same face. I, I I lost weight, yeah. and no, and and I just lost lots of weight, and people are looking and thinking, what's wrong with him? Within a year, I'm now not knocking about the gang. I'm now knocking about. With with the the druggies. uh... With the druggies, yeah. And then obviously my gang got whiffed of it and uh, they didn't have nothing to do with me because I'm a hearing addict and we're just a no no, you know. And and obviously, you know, I'll come back to my gang later, what happened Mm -hmm. to them. So now I'm at a point where I'm wearing the same clothes for weeks, same underpants.
1: Why do you think that happens? Do you just are you that oblivious and without, like you say, you're in that dream-like state, or you don't have a care in the world, where you're like, who gives a fuck if I'm in the same clothes? It doesn't matter. Um, everything's fine. Like no, because if you've got anything of any value, you sell it. it's right.
2: everything. There's no, there's no, You know what I mean. Anything of any value. But now, what it is at this point now, I'm, I'm losing. You know, within a year, nearly five stone in weight. Uh, I got nowhere to live. I'm out robbing every day. You know, and I was good at getting money. Even though I was a thief. I was a good money getter. So now, you know, I'm not having a problem getting the money. But then, obviously, but I'm having a problem with my health because, as you know, I'm, I've gone from smoking it to injecting it. Now I'm injecting the crack.
1: And I'm assuming you're not eating much at that point. I don't eat point.
2: nothing. You know what I eat? I tell you what I eat. My drug dealer phones me up. I phone my drug dealer up. He says, "Right, <coughs> come here on the street corner." So I'm waiting about it for him. And what it is with drug dealers? Obviously, they keep you waiting about for a long time because if I find a drug dealer at three o'clock and he says, "Right, I meet you at past three, he knows full well he's not going to be there for an hour because what he's doing is over that period of that hour, he's waiting for as many drug addicts to phone him as possible. So for him, as a drug dealer, it's less risk, more money. Yep. He don't want to turn up here, 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 yeah? With all sorts of things. And another thing He wants to turn up at one place with 10 drug addicts and get more money, and, and,
1: and if he doesn't say yes to you straight away, you might go somewhere else. Of, course. What of you, course.
0: And are you conscious of that? Are you looking at yourself at that time thinking, I've lost a lot of weight, I don't look like I used to? Because you, you say you've got this ego on you. What happens to that ego? Because that must change.
2: Of course it changes, but I, I, I know I'm in a terrible state but my my obsession and desire to get this drug on a daily basis is incredible and injecting it is of no consequence to you cuz
0: that, that just looking at those makes me feel a little bit sick do you know what i mean like that that's not
2: something that i would I hate needles you, I'd go to the dentist as a kid as a 10 year old and I'd have to have an injection in my mouth they'd have to hold me down my mum would hold me down so the
1: dentist this drug overrode overro- so many things about you like your fear of needles your, your caring about how you look uh, the need to be a part of the gang the need uh, to look immaculate everything just gone and the, that demon it just owns you got me at that still
2: point your parents at that point? No, no, I am living, living in Crackdings all round here, right. East London. I'm uh, look, you know, I could stand Not th- this th- one. Not this one. It does look a bit late. About, on, <laughs> it looks a bit late in here. But I'm on about I could live my life, right? Look, put it this way. If I turned up down here at Canning Town and there was a drug deal and I bought my drugs, there'd be other drug addicts waiting. Now the first thing I have to do, at this point, I'm bought my drugs, I've been out grafting all day, I've been out robbing, I'm clucking. I am withdrawing. I'm withdrawing when I wake up. Depends on the strength of the heroin the night before. I'm in trouble. Cold turkey. So I'm out. I've got my money. I'm waiting for the dealer. I'm now vomiting and bile because I'm not eating. And the first place i got to go when I get my drugs is the nearest public toilet. Hence McDonald's, Kentucky. And I lock myself in the disabled toilet. And that's what I do. The drug pulls up and I inject myself and I sort of crawl in there and float out.
1: Can I ask a question, right? You said you injected your penis. Yeah. Right? I Many mean, times. Do you have to be hard for that? Yes, yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, I me. Mean, when you said that, we kind of glossed over that because you were hitting with so many facts. But I have to go back to that. What the fucking hell does that feel like,
2: mate? Do you know the most, do you know what, if I'm honest, right? What happens is when you cook heroin up, you put citric acid with it, and the citric acid breaks down the heroin and it stings. But to be honest with you, you had to get an erection yeah. to inject, yeah? And I remember I got a bit of an infection in it. I mean, I only done it probably six or seven times, maybe 10 the most. And, and it Isn't got to. Painful? It, it is quite painful. But do you know the most painful place to inject? Your feet. Oh, of course, frank your frank foot frank is, the, is sim- the
1: most sensitive part. Tuck those of your feet hurt. Yeah,
2: right? and the most you in your feet, it's incredibly painful. Your neck's okay, and the other parts of the body, and the penis. Yeah, it got a little bit infected, but you know, it was got to a point where I was de- desperate. I had no veins. I would sit in baths, right? Your hot water now. Some most of the cracklings I went to didn't have hot water, right? But we used to boil the kettle, and sometimes I'll put my hand in literally boiling water. Yeah, with a tourniquet on, no, okay. just to bring the veins up. Now, look, if I mind it, you won't never see a vein in my hand. No. no I'm pretty dark i will just kind from holiday. But look, look yeah. I've got no That's... veins, yeah? But what I'm trying to say is that it got to the point where I'd have to put my hands in literally boiling water, and what heat does, heat expands veins, yeah? yeah? So, But I, I said, this rhyme, I could spend hours, but once I found my groin, there was never looking back. Yeah. It was a vein that thick, and you can't destroy it. Obviously, you gonna have a big hole either side of your groin, but and and that was it, you know? And
0: you... You then sort of continue that. In what time period are we talking here in East London?
2: Because what when I'm running around doing the drugs? Yeah, I'm about so 21. I got on the hearing. So What year is that roughly? So let's go back. So let's say um, I'm there 48. So let's go around 96.
0: So this is a time when East London was a bit more notorious. It yeah. was a bit. It wasn't quite the. Place where someone like me can live. You know, I mean, it's not the safe place that is now the you know trendy
1: hipster. (laughs) He's so funny. No, but you just make me laugh, kid. It's a completely
0: different part of London at that time, Mm. isn't it? It's uh It's not obviously. it's, It's not. It's not the terrible place that everyone paints it to be. But it isn't the hipstery sort of cool part of London at that time, is it? It's not
2: at all, no. no. I mean, London has become obviously quite affluent, hasn't it? Certain parts of East London, places like, you know, you look at them, Monopoly Ball now, the old Kent Road is pretty cool, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. are, I mean, obviously, some where... <laughs> shitholes in <the> people, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, you, know, you get them, Loply Ball now, the old Kent Road is quite a wealthy area. But yeah, yeah. but yeah, it got to a point where, as I said, look, I could go out here and meet a guy in the corner and, and buy my drugs, the first place I rush off to McDonald's. But this guy standing there waiting for the same drug dealer as me, he could have a flat in a tower block over there. And I ended up there for two nights. And then i go to another drug, by, another, another drug dealer and then he's, there's another guy standing there. And he's got a flat around the corner. I could live in six different addresses in the space of a week.
1: Do, do you know how you were very physically frail at this point yeah. and quite vulnerable? Did, you ever, did people ever take advantage of that? The no, not,
2: not, not, not advantage really. I was a bit of a loner. I go out grafting. But the, my, from when I wake up in the morning, my whole day is about getting as much money as possible. But when was it become hard work to the fact where there was pictures of me everywhere in Harrod Selfridges and they took photos and yeah. put them on the wall you know I was nicking vast amounts of stuff so I've had to go further out and this is becoming hard work to get money now you know and it got to the point where you know I've been stabbed and and out and, and of the hospital and my leg I was stressed out in nappies because now what happens is it's down
1: to the bone how did you get stabbed I that's what I'm I,
2: got, I got I got stabbed three times four times in one time and then three in another uh, owed a guy money for a bit of drugs and it was in Ilford not far from here and I remember he pulled out a knife. He tried to stab me, back. A knife like this. Um, I, I got a knife here. Out. Yeah, it's only what I showed the kids. It ain't real, but it's what I showed the kids. Yeah. And he That's pulled not out a
0: knife.
2: Oh, <laughs> and he pulled out a knife anyway, and he, and he tried to chop me in the face. So he grabbed old the knife. Like. He stabbed me clean through my hand. He severed my left middle finger and it sewn back on, and the leg and the bum. And lucky enough, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't sever any arteries. No.
1: That's exactly what you are. Like You're very lucky to be alive, man. I'm lucky. I mean, I've overdosed twice.
2: You know, I've I've woke up in hospital where I've come out of jail and my tolerance has dropped. I've gone back to using what I used to use for when in jail, not realising my tolerance has dropped, injecting myself, and then woke up in hospital. So at this point now, years later, I've been using a good 10 years and whatever it is, and this, you know, my leg stinks. Uh, I don't know what a dead person smells like, but trust me, my leg would smell not far from it. I wake up in the morning, the nappies have soaked into my leg. Now, I've got to get this nappy off, right, yeah? And i rip it off. And as I rip it off, chunks of skin as thick as that and as thick as that come out my leg. And you can see the bone and muscle. And I'll show you a picture. I've got my iPad. So what's happening is now is my legs, right, are in terrible state. I can't walk. Well, that's the problem. I don't care about the leg. I don't care about the leg. You can't get... I can't get to the shops. I've got to run away from shops with armfuls of stuff. I can't even get to the shops to get the gear. So what happens is now is, yeah when we was a gang member years ago we had a couple of guns we had a little derringer and a revolver and I buried one of them one of the fish and chips right in my mum's house and now I've got to go and start robbing the dealers
0: yeah but
2: what well, you've got to remember at this point right yeah it's a terrifying thing I'm, I, I'm, I'm a skinny crackhead I weigh each stone I'm jumping in the back of these drug dealers cars and they're big lumps And but most of the time the guns I had had no bullets in Yeah. so if they pull out a gun with bullets what was I meant to do shout a bang or something you yeah. know it's like you know, it's, a ter- <laughs> it's a terrifying situation isn't it so it got to the point the desperation
1: where- is what's hitting me like from here in the story is you know you are literally willing to lose a leg lose your life lose everything that's the leg there that's when it was that's just the left hand side of it the other mm. side was down to the could bone could you hold that up to that camera yeah. please cheers mate so uh, that's awful. disgusting
2: yeah, yeah. but we got memories. remember the other side was down to the bone it's a lot thinner so as I said at this point now this is what's happened I'm running around I'm, I'm at death's door Right. You can only rob so many drug dealers. Yeah. Right. You can't, yeah, you know, it's not like It's not something.
1: really something I'd recommend, like. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no I, I know. <laughs>
2: and it got to the point where I was in good maze one evening, not far from here, because this is my area around here. And I found up two drug dealers, they pulled up in their car, robbed their stuff. The first place I go, as you know, is McDonald's or Kentucky. But just around the corner from where I robbed the drugs, there was a crack then. I knew they'd have a crack, i lived there, yeah? Some Scottish guy. So I knocked on the door, He's let me in. So I said, I'll treat you, give me two minutes. But when you get drugs off drug dealers, the majority of the time, you know, it's in wraps in Cleanfield, 10, 20-pound wraps of crack and heroin. Also, when I robbed the big bag, green bag, I remember it, there was one block of right, like one-ounce block. They must have just bought it to cut it up. But now I've robbed it. They weren't expecting to be robbed. So I thought I'd scrape a bit off of that and try it. Unknown to me, they haven't cut it up yet. It's stronger Straight. than normal. Straight. Straight. I've injected my normal amount in my groin. Bang. Next thing I know, I've got paramedics in the back of an ambulance. I'm in a hospital gown. I overdosed. I died. And they started my heart again, apparently. Lucky enough, if I'd have gone McDonald's that night, I will be here today because More low than there.
1: a cut me, I tell you. Yeah,
2: but I'm saying, I should, have been, I should have died. If I'd have gone McDonald's that night, instead of going to the crack then, because they have a crack here under an ambulance. Yeah. you must have. And all of a sudden, now, I'm in the back of an ambulance. They rush me into A&E, and, 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 and they brought me back to life. Straight away now, I'm in a hospital gown, and they told me what's happened. And I went to the doctor, where's my clothes? He said, what? I said, my clothes, where are they? He said, down there in the bag. He said, what do you want them for? So I'm going. He looked at me, he laughed. You ain't going anywhere. we are giving you a blood test. And I had septicemia and I had MRSA. And he said, we might have chopped your left leg off. If you stay in the hospital, he looked at me. He said, stay in the hospital for three days. We'll save your life with antibiotics and blood. I said, blood transfusion. Plus, we'll try and save your leg. We can't guarantee. But you must stay for at least three days. If you leave, you're going to die. Blood poison. And what I do? Left. Grab my clothes, push them. And the reason I left, see the bag of drugs I'd robbed? I'd left it on that crack. Then he's going to find it and sell it. Right in three days' time, he's going to find that and sell that. The matter, that is sold and gone. I'm not having that. It's my stuff. I'm obsessed with it, and I rush around there to get it. Now, full well, I had three days to live. the night around there, I took past the police station. And it was a police station. I've been arrested many times. See me in the police? If I'm honest, I damn many crimes I've committed. Thousands, you know, and and. I used to hate the police. I'll tell you for why, because every time they arrest me, I go jail and whatever it was. And it's been to a point where in police cells, I've done some horrendous stuff. You know, I've stripped off naked, smugged myself from my own shit up the walls just to get out and piss the police off. So the police don't like me, I don't like them. But At this point, I've got a choice. Go to the crack then and die in three days. I walk into that police station knowing full well they're going to nick me, but there's a chance I'm going to live. And somehow, the penny dropped. I don't have any common sense left, and I walked into that police station. My bad leg, I walked up to the desk, and do you know what? I, I think I cried. I was beaten, and it was probably the first time I cried in years. At that point, that 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 moment, it saved my life. Mm. You know, what they did. They arrested me. They took me straight back to the hospital. They did their job. I had antibiotics and blood put in me for three days. They got rid of the septicemia. They put me in a wheelchair because now I can't walk, and my leg's so bad. And they wheeled me in front of the judge. And the judge in his court in Essex looked at me, he knew me, sent me to jail many times. He went, no pre-sentence report, six months from prison. Now, I've been in prison 15 times. The first person you see when you go to prison, the first person you'll see is a doctor. He assesses you, makes sure you're fit and healthy, and they chuck you in a wing, put you in a cell. He looked at my leg, he went to me, you ain't coming in my jail.
0: Yeah. We
2: can't cut your leg off. We're not surgeons, you're going to lose that leg. So straight away, they chucked me back on the prison bus, handcuffed me, free guards, took me to A&E. The surgeon came down, looked at my leg, he went, bring him up, we chop it off. They took me straight to the theatre. They handcuffed me to the bed in a big long chain and they were just about to put me to sleep. And another doctor came in and he went, stop, stop, don't don't cut it off yet. He said, I'm going to try and save it using maggots. I looked at him, what? He said, I'm going to put hundreds of maggots in your legs to so eat all the dead flesh. Good idea. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, what? I've seen anyway, the photos of this. Anyway, I'll show you. I've got it in my iPad. This because I'll show the kids this. And what happened was, they pulled them from a laboratory. They're sterilised. And a baby maggot is about 10 times smaller than a normal maggot. Yeah. Now, what happens is a maggot actually comes from a flyer, so they breed them from flyers, blue balls. So when a maggot actually hits your leg, see all the dead enzymes, the dead tissue, the maggot's attracted to that, and it eats the away. Now, we've got memories. I've got hundreds of maggots. So the first day, you're not aware they're there. The second day, they're getting bigger. By day three, they're fully grown. The whole bandage is moving, right? And the maggots are chomping on my leg. And I'd lie there at night and they'd escape out they the bandage. And they'll come. <laughs> Everyone's squirming behind the camera they, right they now. Used, they used to come calling past me at night. But then at this point, I can't go anywhere. I'm handcuffed to the guards. And they should change the guards every eight hours. So they'd do shifts. So the maggots will come calling past me some night. So I pick them up and just chuck them. The nurses and that. They weren't very happy with me. But anyway. <laughs> and so it, you, were, you weren't exactly grateful for what you were receiving. <laughs> I was grateful. I'm, yeah. The nurses were like right me. But this is, this is the maggot picture. So this is a. This is the uh, this is what the maggots look like. I don't know if you can on see it on leg. camera. Yes, and that's that's the maggots chomping and away. What are they eating there? They're, eating, They're eating all the dead skin that the antibiotics won't get rid of. You got me? And they call it the bridlement. After four days, they have to wash the maggots off. And the reason that is because a maggot will turn into a fly yeah. on day five. They pupae. So the last thing i will do is take the bandage off before the flies It'd will be, be all contaminated. So on day four, they take me down to the shower room. They wash the maggots off. They take me straight to the theatre. They put me asleep. They take skin off of this leg and put it on that leg. Yeah, skin graft. Skin graft. Huh? But my body rejected it because of my immune system support. So I had to have twenty operations before eventually the skin took. And this was all free on the NHS. <clears throat> this is all NHS, yeah. Well, so do you know what? If I wanted to, NHS, you that, would have been fucked. Without NHS, I'll be fucked. Also, it, do you know
1: how much? Good it, on the NHS.
2: Did you know? Do you know what it cost, Theresa? Do you know what it cost the prison to keep me there? I worked it out, right? Each each prison guard was getting one hundred and twenty pound per shift. I think mm-hmm. something like that. He told me. So we got. Six guards over 24 hours, right? So add that up. What's that? Six, 120. 720. Right. Then we got the cab fares from the prison to the hospital and then back home, right? So <laughs> you took another couple of hundred quid a day. So it's probably costing about a grand a day to keep me there. Mm-hmm. And I was there for 12 weeks. So without, you know, you add it up. It's a lot of money, isn't it? I'm a money. I'm costing a, lot of, I'm, I'm costing a slightly lot of money. But at this point, anyway, the maggots have saved my leg. The skin grafts took. 12 weeks later, the prison boss come up. Little Indian guy. He took the handcuffs off. And he went, you're free. And they walked off. I was like, what? He said, you served your time. You've been here 12 weeks. You served half or six months. And he walked off and I was like terrified. I mean, i got nowhere to go, Gov. And he went, not had a problem anymore. Yeah. The nurse walked in a few hours later and she looked at me, the sister on the wall. She went, you've got to go. And I remember I lied there and I was like, I got upset because no one came to visit me. You know, what I put my mum through and my brothers, you know, and all my family. And what?
1: Just because of how you'd been pre. Just, hey, yeah.
2: Hey, no, you know, all you got memories, you know, I, I put a lot of people through hell. Mm. And I'm sitting there in this bed thinking, this is it. You know, I, I, all, all I had was one set of clothing. I got no home, I got no job, I got no family, I got nothing. Where do I go? I might as well go back to that. Yeah. Yeah, I might as well go back to it. I've got nothing else. I don't know anything else. But if I go back to that, my health's still really poor. I'm going to die. And I didn't want to die. So i heard about a place for rehab in Somerset. And one of my friends went up me years ago and heard he got better. And I managed to get his number and I got hold of him and I phoned him. I was desperate. And I phoned him up. Like, his name was Larry. I went, Larry, I said, any chance I can come down? He went, ain't that easy. You can't just walk into a treatment centre, a rehab. It's got to be funding. Yeah. Anyway, he made a few phone calls for me and he phoned me back and he went, Look, there's a bed for you in this treatment centre that's funded by the state. He said, But you've got to wait five days. And I said, I ain't got five days. i got because I if I left the hospital, I was in trouble. Mm. I need to go straight from that hospital to a treatment centre. And he went, can't do nothing. Five days, that's it. And I remember the nurse coming and I sat down with her and I, I, I sort of begged her. And lucky enough, she said, all right, and you've got five days. Mm. Five days later, the prison officer from the prison come back up and give me a travel warrant to get me to the because I have to do that, you know. And I ended up in Somerset. And I got his treatment center, and it uh, was incredible. I got there, and met a lot of people just like me, addicts, alcoholics, people. You know, and it was like I, I found a place where I finally knew I could start getting better. And I got better, and I got slowly got better. You know, the rest of my gang weren't so lucky though. Mm. The rest of my gang, I mean, this, four of them after me got on drugs, and uh, three of them died from heroin. After me, it took a few years. I went to two of their funerals. Another four of my gang members. And this ain't genetically, this is drug-induced, mental health, severe, severe. And one more, yeah. he, uh, he came out of the gang 20-odd years ago, and 10 years ago, he stabbed a guy in a pub in Essex and killed him. he had the ideology if it's okay to carry a knife. Well, in the gang when he did it, but he carried it long enough to get to a point one night where he got drunk in a pub, he couldn't beat the guy with his fist and use his knife. And he got a recommended 16 years, I think. So, out of all these little boys growing up in East London, it should have the majority of us should have gone off and done something decent. Because of our behaviour when we were young, <coughs> we end up, you know, and I'm the lucky one, you know, I've been clean. Very lucky. I've been clean now, Very 10, years, 10 years, 5 months. All right, I've still got a needle stuck in my body. I've got 12 blood clots in my legs. Um, some days, as you know from the picture there, it doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, it, wasn't, it was not only a little while ago this was happening, my legs were still sort of like, um, you know, bleeding and that. You know, I've still got a hole in that, as you can see there. So I think I've lightly, make sense? You know, but tested AIDS. I haven't got it. You know, I've shared needles for years. Lucky again, really lucky. Really lucky Still, Still, a got, still, got, on still got on my own teeth, lucky enough, you know. I and mean, I don't know. I, yeah. I I honestly I've I've got quite a good teeth, East you London know. Teeth, like that, like East London TV. teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I used to have really good teeth when I was a kid. But, but what I'm trying to say is, look, the the, the the fact is, I'm I'm grateful I'm sitting here. As you said, I've, i should be dead. You know, overdose twice, the stabbings, the amount of drugs I spent, the self-harms and all that. I shouldn't be alive. But I'm alive today, and I'm grateful for that. And, uh, you know, and what I do today, what I'm passionate about, is that I put my energy and time into educating children.
1: Yeah. So how did you go from being in this this place where you're in the rehab centre yeah. to thinking, oh, no, I know, I want to try and tell other people I not didn't. to do this? I
2: didn't straight away. I didn't. It was, uh, I've been clean 10 and a half years, and I've been in the job seven. But what it was... I was down there and you've got to remember I've, I've, if, if, I, if I went for a normal job and I put my CV on the desk it's, it's like you know you committed thousands of crimes you got chance. You're, 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 you're just a thief Greg crackhead hmm. my, my application forms is going in the bin you know 99% of the time isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah who's going to employ me so I'd had an idea of coming back to Essex where I was brought up and I took a risk because I've come from that safety net and I went to local council and I gave them this idea and they looked at me like you know a bit strange and said, come back next week probably didn't think I'd go back I went back and they said, come back next week. And I went back and then eventually I probably got on their nerves and they gave me an interview and they got me into a youth club in Essex um, seven eight, eight seven and a half years ago. And I turned up at this youth club Friday night in Essex and there's 10 kids, there 10, 12 kids. And they went, all right, everyone stopped playing pool and ping pong. And these kids are looking at me like, oh, you know, this is, our, this is our youth club night, you know, and they give me dirty looks, shared my story, showed them my injuries. Unknown to me, they went back to their school the following day or the next day or whatever. I must have told one of the teachers, because the teacher then contacted the council, the council phoned out and said, oh, one of the kids went back and said, can you do an assembly? And I was like, what, What? 200 kids speaking? And I was like, I was terrified. I turned up at the school, and then the school said, come back, do the whole school. And then obviously a teacher spoke to a teacher, and I spoke to a teacher, and before I knew it, I was like all over the gaff. Doing it for free, voluntary. You know, I was on benefits at the time, but I was enjoying it. You know, I was like trying to put something back in my community, and I was getting loads of good feedback. And then eventually I built a website,
1: you got a good feeling from that and I think that's important because when some people, they get really low on drugs and I've seen it loads of times, a lot of the time they're just missing something <laughs> to give them that buzz. Like, Everyone wants that feel good factor, yeah.
2: don't they? And when I was getting great feedback on social media from the kids, it made me feel good. And then, and then you know, it's my full time job now. Um, you know, eventually my mum forgive me. You know, I don't go around my mum's house, but she meets me on June the 24th, my birthday, in a cafe in Essex, and she gives me a birthday card, and I try and meet her on her birthday. You know, I don't really see my family much, but I've been forgiven, you know, and, and I've got a daughter. I've got, you've I've got,
1: talked about that beforehand. Yeah,
2: I've got a little girl, and, and she's 21 now, her name's Ria, and she's beautiful. I was never allowed to see her. Did, did, you, did you say you walked
1: away? From, I see what happened. Yeah.
2: Years ago, I started dating this girl, Joanne. And I was sitting on and off, on and off, and she put on my madness, and eventually she'd take me back. i do, she'd take me back, and I got her pregnant. Mm. And uh, when she was about five months pregnant, um, I relapsed, mm-hmm. and I left her. And remember she phoned me up. She said, why don't you come home? Where are you? I said, I'm back on the herring. She looked, what? I said, I'm back She was what about me and the baby? I said, I don't care, get rid of it. That was, my, that was where this took me. Mm. I didn't care. And I remember she said to me on the phone, she went, I can't get rid of it. I feel I'm too far gone. I went, I don't care. Just leave me alone. Never see her again. Three and a half months later, I'm back in jail. And I remember being in Pentonville prison, and the door opened, the guard went, he give me a letter. And I read it, and it was from jo and my girlfriend. She found out how she found out I was in jail, I don't know. In the letter, she went, Can I come and see you? I'm still pregnant. I'll give birth in two weeks. And bless her, I couldn't, I not forget it's hot summer's day in uh, July. And she came up to visit me. Must have took her three hours on the train by herself, eight and a half months pregnant. And I was sitting in the hall waiting for her. And she came walking through the door and she looked stunning. I mean, she's a really pretty girl, long blonde hair. She's all dressed in white. I remember she's all big and fat, not pregnant and fat. Yeah. And she came up and sat with me <laughs> and I give her a hug and she burst into tears. You know, she was so relieved to see me. And the reason she came come all that way, because she knew I had one week left to serve. So I ideology her uh, is, she, if I in that pregnant state, when I get out. Might I thought, sort you out. And she said to me, I had one hour visit with her. She went to me, promised me, when you get out of jail, she must have said it a dozen times, you will never ever touch drugs again, move in with me. And we get married and, and, and have the kid. I went, yeah, great. I said, I'll be the best dad ever.
0: Mm.
2: And I give her a hug goodbye and she waved and blessed her. She had to go all the way home by herself, went back to my cellmate. I went, oh, the best visit. I can't wait to get out of jail next week. Seven days later, I got released. Just before you get released from prison, they get you, they take you down to reception, they give you back your property, your clothes, and also you get a little envelope, brown envelope with 60 quid in it. They call it a discharge grant. I thought, right, well, first thing I'm going to do, leave the jail, go into a flat, give them the money for the baby, then get a job. What sort of job? I don't know, but I'll get some sort of job. You know, I need to step up here. And uh, she was waiting for me, bless her. But when they released me, they released me with six other prisoners. And one of them was a crackhead. Knew him, used with him. And uh, got talking to him on the way out the gate, That's went crazy, off with him, and used. Went off
1: him and so knows. do you feel like. Um, i never see her again. Towards your your little girl, do you feel like. I mean, how, how much of her life have you been there?
2: Well, uh, well what happened was, um, she, eventually she was born, and mum brought her up by herself. And when my daughter was about five, maybe six. My ex met some decent guy and, and she married him and eventually my daughter started calling dad. When I heard about this, it was quite painful mm. because now I've heard about this, you know, I, I, I've sort of, you know, thinking, you know, look at my past, look at the consequence and I had to accept it. And you know, fair play to him; done a better job than me. So when I moved back to Essex from my rehab seven years ago, eight years ago, I started doing the talks. You know, I looked her up on social media mm. and she had her there's last name and I looked up on things like Instagram and Twitter and I knew what she looked like. And she's a really pretty girl. And I remember walking through Romford one day, not far from here, and uh, I see her with her stepdad. And it was like painful. You know, And I was, actually me was Saturday afternoon shopping with her, walking around. You know, not him, but you know, my past, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was it was your own
2: fault. No, no it, I'm not blaming it? anyone. Yeah, yeah. i you know I wasn't resentful. I was I was sad. Really, it is. It's, it's,
1: it's fucking shit, isn't it? Yeah,
2: the fact that you know because of that rubbish that I'd not you know I'd nearly lost my life and I'd, you know my daughter was being brought up by another man, and you know and, and and yeah, I was gutted. But then a little while after that, I got an invite to a school, and the school emailed me from a website, not aware that I was her dad, We've got a different set of names, and I was like, wow, I'm going to my daughter's school. At this point, she's in year 10, she's 15, and I'm like, what do I do? So I managed to get my ex-girlfriend's phone number off someone on Facebook, and I mm-hmm. phoned her up, I thought, oh, she ain't pissed off at me, and I phoned her, and she was all right, to be honest with you, and I told her I was going to rear school, and she went to me, look, that day you're going to a school, she won't be there. She's doing work experience at another school just down the road. Otherwise, I probably considered letting you say hello to her. I thought, well, how's my luck? You know, that day, dad a year go to my school, and she's mm-hmm. at another school that day. Anyway, turned up at her school a fortnight later. I'd done an assembly with the girls or girls' school, year 10. Walked out the school gate to go home at lunchtime. I walked out the school gate then the bottom of the street by the shops. My daughter was there. She'd come out of work experience, gone to the shops to get some lunch and I see her. And she come walking towards me. I ain't scared of kids. I speak to tens of thousands. The kids don't scare me. This little girl I was terrified. I was terrified of scaring her. I was scared of myself. Rejection. What she tells me to cough.
1: Yeah. She's probably one of the few people who could probably break you at this point, I would imagine. I'm terrified.
2: Yeah. I, my heart, I could see my Heart beating through my T-shirt.
1: Because if she turns around to you at that point, you know, I'm trying to think of how I would feel if I'm you. Yeah. And she says, and she gets angry and she says, you're a failure, you let me down. And do it. She could just, that would shatter me as a, as a man. I mean, like, I'm
2: scared, of course I am. Yeah. I don't want to scare her anyway. You know, she's this little girl. I'm, I'm a stranger walking up to in the street. But I plucked the courage up. Mm-hmm. And I would split a second. do I do or I don't do it? And I was terrified. The amount of things going through my head at the time was unbelievable. I was just, you know, and I walked up and it was just like me and her. It was like in this bubble. And I walked up and introduced myself. I I'm your dad. And she gave me little hugs. She said, oh, hello. And it was like looking at yourself. she's talking to me. I'm not even listening to what she's saying. I am fascinated that my daughter is standing in front of me at the age of 15. And she's talking to me. And she knows who I am. I've introduced myself. And it was like surreal. It was, it was just like being a dream. And she walked off and I stood there. And I was, I was just sucking it all up. And it was like, wow, mm. 15 years away for that. And I rushed home as quick as I could. And I wrote her a letter. I can't spell properly. My is like eight-year-olds, uh-huh. you know. So I had to Google those words. and look like, div, you know what I mean? <clears throat> so I'm Googling these words, trying to copy them. And this letter that would have took someone an hour. It took me about four hours. And it was a men's letter to her explaining why I did what I did and the man I am today. And in the bottom of it, I put, right, well, I'm really sorry I did you in your mate. You should give me, blah, 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 blah. I'm off the drugs now. I'm not in gang anymore. And I would love to see you again. And mm-hmm. the bottom of the letter, I remember, I put little PS. I put, love, dad. I got brave. I put a little kiss. And I put, text me or write me a letter and we're going to do something. So I put my address and my phone number on the letter and I posted it. I got the address from mum's, so I posted it. So now two, three days later, I'm, I'm impatient. I'm an addict and I'm like, posting's come in, there's no letter. I'm checking my phone every day for a text. A week's gone by, nothing. I sent a friend request on Facebook, no reply. Fortnight went by. And after two weeks, I thought, you know what? She's had the letter by now and she's probably read it. And, uh, and, and she decided she didn't want to see me. And to be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm at this point, you know, I'm I'm gutted because it lifted my spirit seeing her. I had that little bit of hope. You know, she spoke to me, blah, 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 and then two weeks later, after trying to make contact, she she's 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 ignoring me. So straight away, Maya's telling me she's got a dad now. How, how, how long ago was this? This was uh this would have been five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, now I'm thinking she's got a dad. He's brought her up. And you know, and uh, uh, she don't want to know me, and I had to accept that stuff, you know. And and I had to accept it. And I thought I'm going to see a walking man all the time there with him. It's going to be pretty old because now she knows who I am. Anyway, that That's was that- day that was day fourteen. Yeah, day fifteen after the letter sent, I got a telephone call from my mum, and she phoned me out. She went, you right? I said, what's wrong? She said, no, way, nothing's wrong. She goes, you know, we've been away for two weeks in Greece on holiday, and she went rear read your letter this morning. I went, yeah. And she said, do you, you want to take her out next week? Something to eat. Anyway, 10 days later, I met her and took her for a cheeky Nando's. <laughs> and then ever since that day, she's in my life now. Yeah. And we spend time together. I'm seeing her Monday. And that stuff I shouldn't have in my life today, I've got because I've managed to stay away from this stuff. And it's given me a life and my oldest dreams. It's given me a life beyond. And today, my job that passion I have for trying to steer kids away because we've got a problem in society we've got a drug problem we know that it's increasing crime's increasing knife crime's increasing gangs are spying out of control so what it is now most people are scratching their heads going oh what are we going to do about this we never get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You never stop knife crime. You never stop drug beer. You never stop gangs. Stimple. It's, it's, you never, it's coming out hundreds of years, but it's just more now. Stop the podcast. Just there for one second. This episode of the True
0: Geordie podcast is sponsored by betonbrazil.com. It's the new betting site for all sports punters with great odds, markets and offers. Listeners to this podcast can now get a free £10 when they deposit their £10 just by using the promo code TRUE10, E One Zero. Just visit betonbrazil.com and enter the promo code TRUE10 when you deposit your £10 and you'll get £10 free. Also look out for our daily happy hour offers between 5 and 6pm. You can sign up at betonbrazil.com. Over 18's only offer is for new customers only. Terms apply. Betting should be fun, so please
2: gamble responsibly. So what we do is we stabilise the situation and the way we stabilise the situation is with real early intervention. Now the problem we got with that is is that I do my talks for free and I get paid talks. In Havering my talks are free. I offer it to lots of schools in Havering. Probably 70-60% of them take me up on the offer. There's still lots of schools and not interested. They're going no. Now it's not just they're saying no to me they're saying no to no one. The reason I know this is because I've got parents on social media contacting me Mm. they've contacted the school they don't want no one in. So, the problem we got there is you've got one person in the school with a thousand kids, a click of a button going yes, no to someone like me going in. So, how does that one person have that power to play God, technically, with his kids' futures? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Because the average age of someone to get involved with drugs, knife crime, gangs, is 14. Yeah? That's the average age because the dynamics are changing. It ain't ice cream jelly no more, it's not 10, 11, 12 they're getting to parties now, is alcohol weed. So is there any vulnerability? That's when it's going to be, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it I sense? mean, I've uh, I've got quite a bit of experience with my like, friends and family on this and uh, my cousin, who was sort of raised as like, almost like a brother. Do you know, like when you haven't got a brother yourself, so when you've you got a cousin, you sort yeah. of, you do everything together, you dress like, like and all that. And um, that was sort of the age that he... Got introduced to weed and and yeah. then, but he, a bit like yourself, was an extremist that, that runs in the bloodline of my family. Like you know, yeah. you take everything as far as you can, and um, eventually move through the gears. And a few years ago, he was on opiates and okay. never woke yeah. up. Yeah, died. Just yeah. it's fucking awful. But like. You need to break that chain early enough, I think. And I think the message that you're giving people is really good of you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This this education is what people need because a lot of people think it'll never be me. And and, and I, I'm one of these people that I think too nowadays, if people want to smoke cannabis in moderation and drink in moderation or, and anything almost, almost apart from like heroin, yeah. <laughs> in moderation is fine. But um it's it's stopping people going through the gears, I think, is a, is a really important thing.
0: Part of that's information, though,
2: isn't it? Yeah.
1: And
0: that's, that's when way. you
2: know. Between you both, over the past, say, 10 days, two weeks, how many people have you seen outside a shop picking homeless that are probably on drugs?
0: Well, immediately, as soon as you showed me that picture, I thought of a guy who, uh, I live in a brick lane at the moment, yeah. and there's a guy who goes around there on his bike, and he there's a lot of tourists in that area, yeah. and he preys on tourists. And yeah. he's got a like, gash in his arm. Yeah. As deep as yours, like right down yeah. to the bone. And when you see it, you're like, fuck, that yeah. is di- like, that's bone, you know? Mm. And he goes up to tourists and he goes, I need money for the bus. And people give him cash. Of and he's clearly desperate.
2: Yeah. And I think, how do you stop someone at that point? Like, do you walk up to him and no, no, like, there's, 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 there's a point where, you know, when you're on it, look, you come and talk to me when I'm 10. You share, I share my story with me when I'm 10. Exactly. When I get the opportunity to get involved with what I did, at least I'm going to think, wow, do you know what? Do I really want to take that risk? You know, uh, is, is there more, there's got me more to life than living like that. You come and talk to me when I'm 14, when I'm a fully fledged, involved culture. with drugs and it, I've got a knife in my pocket and I'm a gang member you wouldn't even have got me into a room to listen you think you know it all you though. would never have got me into a room to yeah, listen to at that sense the point. so that early intervention is paramount now what the bit I was getting about how many how many homeless people you've seen in the past month or week I see a lot I travel all over the country Yeah. what people forget is every time you see a person begging outside a shop with no teeth in they addicted to crack or heroin they was once a school kid
0: yeah exactly Yeah.
2: Right. and then we asked the question Was there a missed opportunity there?
0: Well, of course there was because they're in that situation. Of
2: course. We don't change every young mind. There'll always be heroin addicts. There'll always be knives and drugs and gangs. Always. But what we need to do is we need to afford the clock 10 years and say, instead of 25 kids a year being stabbed to death, is there going to be 50? or are we going to keep it at 25 with early intervention education? Make sense? Mm-hmm. I think so uh, stabilisation is better than increase, isn't it? Oh,
1: and I think one thing that you've said is curiosity um, drove a lot of your drug use yeah. in terms of moving through the drugs. And yeah. I think if we can educate people it will remove that curiosity. And I think we need, because if you tell people, all right, this is this drug, this is what it does to you and this is how it looks and this is every, and tell everyone, and, and, and I know there'll be fear in doing that because yeah. you're like, will this encourage them? Well, right now, doing nothing isn't really helping the situation. Uh-huh. So doing something is certainly not going to do any worse. Sure. No, the,
0: the thing is, what you're talking about is not, uh, because you say you talk to thousands of kids every week. Yeah. The likelihood is a majority of those kids are actually going to go on and lead normal lives.
2: Yeah, of course.
0: But what you're trying to get and target is those... small percentage of people that could go down your route because you know as a kid it never occurred to me that I would smoke weed never occurred to me I'd do any of that do you know what I mean and so I was one of those kids who just stayed on the straight and narrow doesn't really like your story still touches me but I know there are other kids in our school who went down other routes You're trying to talk to those people. And we're not going to but the problem is a lot of people, those people are alienated because in America, there's a war on drugs. Yeah. So it's basically, you know, get the druggies are the bad guys, essentially. Yeah. And in England, there's a similar approach, but it's just not the same. You're trying to not alienate those people. You're trying to talk to them and inform them.
2: I'm just, I, like, I went to school this morning. Yeah? I've done two assemblies year seven, year eight. So I spoke to 250, you know, 11 and 12 year olds, you know, and, and, and I know when I leave here in a minute, I took a picture in the hall. I post it on Instagram tonight, and I get a thousand messages a month yep. for the public to read on Instagram. You know, kids say inspired and blah, blah, blah. And these are little girls as well as little boys. So I talk about everything from yeah. alcohol to drugs to knife crime to gangs. I don't go in there and tell them off. I don't tell, I, I share my story. Mm. But what I try and do is I try and put them in my shoes as that 10 year old little boy yeah. with a future. Yeah, with ambition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a dream one of doing of something positive. Yeah, wanting Most boys love football, you know. And and so what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to come with that journey with me. Then we go into deep addiction. Then we talk about suffering and we we we, de- we deglamorize it by you know uh, doing what I did to myself, the self harm, the, the legs hanging off. So at least the kids now understand that when they get that opportunity, age 14, 15, 16 maybe a little bit earlier, at least they know there might be a risk. They have choices. Look, a school was a safe environment. Right, A home for the majority of kids is a safe environment. Anything antisocial that happens on our in a community is on the street. Well, probably Friday, Saturday night. Most knife crime is, is weekends. Gangs, five on the street. Drug dealings on the street. So if there's going to be any vulnerability, it's going to be when they're outside of the school without the home. Make sense? Yep. So that's when at that point, I try and give them that information about what's really going on on the streets. Yep. And let them unfold and see situations that might. Peer pressure
1: is quite a bad thing though as well, isn't it? That's one it thing is. that I remember. The first time I was offered things, you know, young, and, and it's like, well, everyone's doing it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what, what, when
0: was that, what were you offered?
1: Eleven, twelve, thirteen, cannabis, basically, and that's Not heroin. Sort that, but no, but yeah. that's the that's how it starts. Is, is obviously what what you're saying, and uh, and the fact that everyone's doing it. It does really put a lot of pressure on kids, doesn't it?
2: Look, we don't know. Look, you can go and get a thousand people tomorrow and start smoking weed, yeah, right? You know, and add that thousand in five, six, seven years' time, you might have one, two, three, four, five, or six that escalate into heroin. Now, I know for a fact, very unlikely that is anyone's first drug of choice. Yeah. Very unlikely. Someone will go and take heroin for their first ever drug of choice. Mm every heroin addict I know did start smoking weed, yeah? Now we're not saying everyone who smokes weed becomes a heroin addict, but there are some. So when I go into a school and speak to a thousand kids, he's trying to find them some. Mm-hmm. Make sense?
1: The ones who have the, the mental state where they are extremists yeah. sort of thing, that, yeah. they, the, that nature. Well, I they, don't know they are. When the kids yeah, are in front but of them. they're out there. <laughs> yeah, you out, know yeah I mean? of course they
2: are. So that's why for me, it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. The more kids I speak to, essentially, the more I stop from living like I used to. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And do you feel like... Um, Post drug use, you look back on yourself. I mean, obviously you'll never know, but do you think that drugs have changed you? You mentally?
2: I think today, at the age of forty eight, I'm in great. You know, even my legs are still poor. I'm in great physical condition. I'm in great mental condition, spiritually, emotionally. I'm a well-balanced guy. Mm-hmm. You know, Do you live alone now. You used no, to I, I, I've got a nice little flat in Brentwood. I keep myself to myself. I pay my taxes. I pay my bills. I'm a productive member of society. I'm a busy guy. You know, I'm I'm, I'm booked. I'm every, I'm working with kids every day all over the country. So you know, I, I, I'm just I'm 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 in the business of giving kids bright futures or choices. But I'm also trying to. I won't ever speak to completely successful, Wake up, the adults. Look, if I'm responsible for a group of young people, whether it be a football club, a youth club, a cricket club or a school, and I'm responsible, in charge, and I go years and months without giving these kids education around this stuff, then what I'm doing is I'm failing them. And I'm not doing our job properly because what I'm doing, is I'm leaving these kids vulnerable. Mm. The whole point of school is to create what? A productive member society. Go off, pay bills, live up ever after, yeah? That's the whole point of school, isn't it?
1: In theory, Mitt, I...
2: Yeah, in theory... (laughs) Give give someone that option. Of of course, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's not to grow up and, you know, the last thing I want to do is go to a school and see a group of kids, yeah, that are 15, 12, 13, and a decade later, me walk past Sainsbury's and they're outside begging. Yeah. Yeah, because what teachers forget is, all these people in education that are meant to be passionate about my kids, they forget when they walk past a shop and see someone outside their begging, that was once a school kid.
1: I feel like uh, they negate responsibility of the the children that are coming through the system. So they they take it as like, oh, well, we're going to put this service on for you. And if you make the most out of it, then that's great. But if you don't, then that's not our problem. And I think they need to take a closer look at what we're teaching kids. And I think... Teaching them about the dangers of life is a really important thing to do, and well, the, be, fact should, that, the fact that you'll offer to come and that people will say no yeah. blows my fucking no,
2: mind. Unco- Listen, blows me mind. And you look and you think, my god, that what, that that person that refuses to have the kids in their kids them about drugs, are probably more dangerous than drug dealers. But I'll tell what you what that is. I'll tell you what that yeah. is. The drug dealer, basically, and it's none of my business what I do. Don't really give a shit. Sure. Yeah. The adult that works with the kids, I meant to. Yeah. So when they say no and refuse, point blank, to let anyone speak to them, <clears throat> what? why? What, what reasons do you get? Or do you just get a straight no's? Or- we haven't got a problem in our school, right? The problem's not in your school, <laughs> it's in society. And I'm like, well, come on, sure. you've you got a degree in education. Wake the fuck up. Yeah. Wake up, do your job properly. You are failing in your job. You know, and it's like, come
1: on, it's just like... It, that, that literally could save scary, a life. It? No, it that, w- that assembly, that one is, I've got no doubt that you've saved someone's life by planting a seed in that brain that potentially five, 10 years, you've deterred at least one, at minimum one person. If I've done one, that's that's, then, that's enough. Exactly.
2: I know through social media, through Instagram, I'll post a picture later. Look, it's a lot the more comments. than that. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is, is that it's not just about drugs. It's everything, anything antisocial. You know, Alcohol and, and when I go to prisons and speak to these young boys in jails that are serving How do you find 18 them? years, what's it like? They're good as gold. Mm. They're kids. And every single boy I go and speak to in a prison, I speak to many hundreds and they represent hundreds of schools and they're 15 to 18. So they've not left long school. Some are still school kids. And I say to them, What you in for? I say, I'll stab someone. I've got 15 years. Yeah. I got caught with, you know, a load of drugs. I've got 10 years. And I just ask them that simple question. Like I go on about all the time. Anyone ever come to your school and give you a workshop? Never, not once. And I'm promising you now that not all, but the majority of adults who work with kids can't be bothered to do it. They just can't be bothered. It's a, it's, it's a tick box exercise. Off stage, tick box, tick box, tick box. Bum on yeah. lot, yeah. I mean, a lot of those people are
0: also just teachers who have become very sort of ground down by the system that they work in. And, I've, you know, they're not, they're not negligent in the way that they don't care about the kids. They get said no to so many times a day or they've got a headmaster who's a complete arsehole. Yeah. You know, my dad's a teacher... And, you know, he won't mind me saying, the two previous headmasters at some of the schools that, you know, I I was at, dickheads. Like, yeah. they just didn't know what they were doing. They had yeah. no idea what they were doing when yeah. teaching kids. And I was fine because I had two parents who kept me on the straight and narrow. But I imagine there were loads of other kids who wanted help from that headmaster or wanted help from a teacher. And that teacher was overstressed, yeah. overworked or was told don't get involved with kids because if you get involved with kids then you get involved with a problem and then you know you're part of that problem and then you... I, I feel
1: like sort of one things. one thing that could really be done in schools is for to have one day of the month one day of the month where you know in your in your class mm-hmm. that teacher has time to get to know the kids. But
0: Brian, that happens in all private schools.
1: <laughs> right? Right. Well, it didn't happen in my school. I, I, and I feel like if, if teachers do just have one day of the month, however, where they sit and chat and say, So what's it like at home? How do you do? And, 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 and just have one day they'll spot something that should, like it can't be wasted time. You should know the kids who you're teaching and I just feel like there's no relationship there. I felt like I was going in and it was just an emotionless robot at the front of the class who was going, and you shall learn math, science and English. And I'm having to regurgitate that onto the bit of paper. There's no connection there. And I feel like, if the the way to get kids to want to learn uh, or be a part of what's going on is to get them on side and to treat mm-hmm. them with respect i never got treat with respect i think that would be a good start and to get to know them and like when you sit there knowing how you are with us obviously i'm pretty sure you give them that respect then you don't talk down to them you talk to them? Do you know what I mean?
2: I, 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 I talked to them on a level where now I've spoken to 300,000 children. I know the ideology, how yeah, to walk in and speak to a group of young people mm-hmm. and have a bit of banter and lighten it at the end, have a little bit of a laugh, talk about my daughter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you take them to this dark place and at the end you have a bit of fun. And we we'll talk about football as well. You know, I'm mm-hmm. really lucky. I had a football club contact me a few years ago, Queen's Park Rangers, and then they started working me in Newcastle. So, you know, I got, and, and so you try and bring, you know, lift them out of that gloom and say, you know, life's good for me today. And it's that. And, you know, if I, I've got a picture of me in the hall today, if I posted that now, yeah, within 20 minutes, there'd be probably 50 comments from kids. So straight away, that's what they're waiting for. So I'll tell you, know, kids. So what I'm doing is, you, you know, you, you, and a good thing is my website. I'm not an hour with these kids and I'm gone. The majority of them follow me on social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, and then I'm constantly posting stuff. Mm. Week after week, little little drip feeds, yeah, mm-hmm. to let remind them what's going on in the world, you know. And the amount of direct messages I get, hundreds. You know, I only get 1,000 messages a month for the public to read. So what I'm trying to say is I'm not just that hour and I'm gone. These kids have an opportunity to look at my website and they go home and their parents tweet me or email me or thank me. So it's just about, as you said, if it's just that, if just one child I can stop living like I used to because I'm a lucky one, that's someone's son or daughter. You know, it belongs to somebody, you know. And what's the price? What a price on life. You can't. Because put it this way, if I was a headmaster of a school, and I didn't get no one to speak to them about dangers of drugs, knife crime, and gangs, I would hold my head in shame. Yeah. I would hold my head in shame. And trust me, there are a lot of people with like my kids in a position, a lot of teachers don't have the power to do that. Yeah. You get certain roles in school, you've got PSHE citizenship, and it's the job as someone the head of PSHE to get someone and talk to them. And I believe the more powerful the story is someone who's got experience. Someone who's lived it. Go in and tell them how it is. <sighs>
1: One thing I want to ask you about, because you've commented on that I before, know. is knife crime and the fact that is there's now a culture where out of fear, a lot of the time, people feel like they've got to carry a knife now. It's not even a, it's not even what it used to be. I'm carrying a knife because I'm a hard cut. It's mm-hmm. now I'm carrying a knife so I don't lose my fucking phone. Do you know what I mean? That's what I said to you out there. Look, I, I, I would like say,
2: that? look, if you carried a knife 10 years ago, you was either a gang member, a drug dealer, or involved with crime, yeah, basically, right? I would say now... 40, 50% of people who do carry knives are not criminals. They're not in gangs. They're not involved with drugs. They're worried about the gang members robbing them for their phone. The amount the kids have confiding me and say their mate's been robbed. Be- oh one boy told me we robbed three times for his phone. Now he started carrying a knife because what he's doing is now he's already pissed off that he's kicking his phone, robbed. So ideology is if I carry a knife, I'll get to keep my phone. Yeah. You know, and I say to the kids, just give it to them. Yeah, you know, it's a bit of plastic. You know, you can replace it. And so now we've got this pandemic in society where there's fucking so many. I agree knives. with that,
1: by the way. If anyone pulls a fucking knife out and you're just fucking. It's over. I'll check d- d- try and carry on.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think you've really got much of an option. I mean, even then, the problem being, you know, most people carry a knife. It's not like you're trained to fight with a knife, is it? No, like, but sometimes it might, get used, it might get used
2: on, you, on you. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is the reason we've got so many knives now and it's all over the news and everyone's saying, oh, there's knife. It's gone crazy with knives. It's blown up. It's not because obviously there's much more gang members, which obviously the gangs are growing. It's because people are terrified of the gangs. These young boys living in these estates are running around normal boys, never committed a crime, never took a drug, but they've got a knife in their pocket because they're terrified. And that's what's happened now. It's that fight, fire with fire thing, isn't it? You know that that that's a desperation.
0: There's a sense of desperation. It's a, it's a fear. Yeah,
1: There's without so doubt, because nobody it wants to have a fist fight anymore. No, they don't. Because no one wants to get their ass kicked. So the easier way is fucking carry a knife. Yeah. Then
0: we also it, it does sort of help um, ghettoize those areas as well, which serve certain purposes. You know, it's don't go into that area. interesting. That well, well, we've,
1: we've been we've been talking now. recently about how should America have as many guns as they have and all that, but like over here, that it's just. A different fucking weapon, but it's just becoming just as rifle almost. Well, now. If
2: you die from it, then it's probably a problem, isn't it? Put it this way: I, 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 I do see a lot of stuff on social media. We're, we're going to end violence. We're going to end knife crime. I, I can't see it. Mm. Not 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 in the next couple of decades.
0: You, the thing that um, I mean, I, I I think you're quite a hopeful person. You have quite a hopeful story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You're de- it sounds a lot like you're dealing with a system which doesn't seem to offer many alternatives to what the the route that you took. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. either. You're a normal person, or you're a gang member, and the situation you describe sounds relatively hopeless. Yeah. You know, the, it doesn't sound like they get much support from anyone else. Does not sound like you have much support? You were very lucky to go to a hospital where they were they of persevered course. with you because they could have just been like cut his leg off and yeah, back he goes. Yeah. They
1: almost did. They
2: almost did. Yeah. Why yeah. do
0: you think that doctor did come back down? Why did you do you think know they what? Cared he, to so be honest
2: much? with you, he was, I remember I remember him. He was a he was a Scottish surgeon. He was he was actually a British reconstruction doctor. It seems potential. Yeah, potential. Yeah. But he, he, uh, <laughs> he, he he just he just wanted to help me. He probably you know he was he, he was caring and he went I'm going to try the maggot thing and I tried it and it saved my legs. You know, thank so,
1: God for people like that. Yeah, I mean, thank God for people like it. It's funny you just said doctor there. We were talking beforehand about what's now becoming popular is acid attacks. Yeah. Um, and the guy who we had on recently, Dr. Esher, who's a plastic surgeon, has um, come out and said if he ain't ever a victim of an acid attack, he's it's happy to help and try and reconstruct okay. them. But um, what do you think about people doing well, that? I, I, I said to you
2: outside. I had the mm. BBC phone me up the other day just asking me about what, what I know about or what I've heard about. It. And you, you, the only thing I've, I don't know anyone personally, but it's like, I guess years ago, years and years ago, the nearest thing to acid was ammonia. Yeah, and people used to put ammonia into lemon jiffy bottles and squirt it because obviously you can squirt it a long way. If someone pulls a knife on you, you can squirt and it obviously temporarily binds you. Now they're using this sulfuric acid, and I see a program last night. And it, is it is it going to become the same as knife crime? Is it going to become that everyone's carrying acid? So everyone else carries acid to protect themselves. Are we going to get this blow up pandemic of everyone carrying acid? <laughs> that sounds fairly. Um... Makes sense. I mean, it almost sounds comedic
0: that you're saying. Do you know what? To me, that no, sounds but ridiculous. Yeah. But, then,
1: but it is you know, becoming Dalston, reality. I think, in
0: Dalston, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, yeah. there was someone going around the club just spraying acid in I said attacks.
1: Well, that well, was, so was so what Dr. Esher came out about and said. If you're a victim of that attack, I come into my surgery and I'll help you out. But yeah. I was, Uh, To me, like, that's the, even, uh, can you get worse than that? It's as bad as it gets, like, the acid attack, because, like, you're deforming people's faces, and you're literally whirling this fucking acid around in a nightclub, and there's people just disfigured for life who have not done nothing wrong. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong, it's not, so with a knife, for example, you have to get up, I mean, I've had someone pull a knife on me mid-fight and fought them, with nothing, just me hands, and literally had it out in a club. And I tell you now, at least it was almost like, at least it's a 1v1 situation or what. With acid, I don't even have to, there's not even a chance, man. I've got no prey, at least with a knife, I've got a fucking chance. Acid, what am I going to do like that? There's my arms fucked, gone, do you know what I mean? Do
0: you worry a little bit that the media... So when you're asked by the media to contribute something... What what's your approach towards that? Because actually there's a lot of people who have begun to take the approach that actually the media don't help the situation. And while they help sort of tell a story, a lot of the time it either glamorizes it or it sort of um, gives people something to look at and be like, wow, well, I could do that.
1: Or, or they use what happened... Uh, against a certain group to further their own agenda. Yeah, Do you know what and I mean? that's
0: what I sort of worry about because there's not many media organisations I think are very responsible about their reporting about drugs, about um, gang, about any of this sort of <sighs> thing. But
2: what you remember is the, 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 when when the media reports something, they're only getting second-hand knowledge, aren't exactly, they? Exactly, yeah. They're only getting a story from someone who knows someone. There's no real first-hand knowledge here. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, because I spent a million pounds on drugs and I committed so much crime and I used for 23 years... You know, and the stabbings and the gang stuff. So, you know, there's no qualification for what I did. If there was, I've probably got a degree in it, you know, with what's going on in the world. I know. The PhD, thank you. But (laughs) what I'm trying to say is I know what goes on in the world. So when I've got these people you offer these workshops to going, no, we don't need this problem. They've got no experience. They probably smoked a joint when I was at university. That's the only experience they've got of drugs or something yeah. So because I've got this first-hand knowledge, and I see how things are unfolding, and I see the dysfunction, I see the vulnerability, and I see all this stuff, and it's just a bit frustrating. But you know, I, you know, I ain't got. I'll keep my energy for the positive side how, of my work. How do you? There's there's one more thing. I'm also
0: going to come back to in what you said. Um, how do you feel towards drug users now? Like, when you see a drug user on the street, do you feel a relation towards that person? or your... What do you mean, a heroin addict?
2: Yeah, just anyone who's anyone sort of you can see as a drug yeah, user. Yeah, I, 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 I don't look down on them. Um, I was once like that. Yeah, exactly. So like, when you, I do you, see them, it right? gives me a bit of gratitude right yeah. I am today. And, yeah, he's sad to see. You know, when you walk past and you look and you think, you know, that person's family is suffering now and all that, and you look and you think they've got no life. And, you know, as I said the drug in, the, the, the drug situation that's street today is not decreasing yes. it's increasing at uh, quite a rapid rate
1: people people want to get high like that's never going to change and it's especially not going to change in, in, in an economy where more and more people are becoming poorer and poorer people want to get forget the problems then people are getting more and more fucking problems so it really does come well, back to, for me, an issue with poverty. Like I, I, I associate yeah. personally, uh, the more the most drug users I knew were always the ones who were fucking.
0: It's funny because it does say something about the background, doesn't it? That my approach, I think I was brought up in, a I had a lot of privilege mm-hmm. in the sense of my life. Never really came into contact with drugs. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, the nearest you got is cannabis. I think background is a huge yeah. part
1: of it. Do well, you know what the, I mean? Sorry, different classes have different drugs. We all know that the the suit and ties out there sniff and coke like it's going out of fashion. Mm-hmm. But what it went I'm out saying of fashion a long time. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like I remember being young and there was like there was areas that were rough as fuck and I remember going to like my uncle's house and he was like shooting up and shit like that. Like I, I, there, there's an issue where people yeah. want to escape the problems that come through being fucking skinned basically and I think that that's one of the worst problems that breeds this
0: yeah I mean we are going down a very similar route to America
2: one thing I did pick up on you said that you think you spent a million
0: pounds
1: on probably more
2: well look at this right look at this way. in my bag I've got my CRB right which is all my criminal convictions yeah, yeah I've taken the scores schools and that you know and it just shows you and it shows you times where I didn't get arrested so we got memories when I'm nicking average of two grams of stuff every day. And obviously, I went to prison quite a few times. And when I was in prison, we got memories, prison saved my life. I'll tell you why that is, because when I went to jail, I went between three and nine months. The most you can get for shoplifting is a year. It's very rare you'll get a year for shoplifting, right? But I even I'm only vast amounts of money. So when I go to jail, I'm behind the door, I'm not using, I get a job in the kitchen, I put on two stone in 12 weeks. I come out a picture of Elvis, like an MOT for me. I come <coughs> out and I'm back using. Yeah. So obviously, going to prison, done that for me. But we got memories, Yeah. When you're spending like, you know, three grand a week on drugs and then from 1992 to 1996 on my finger, I didn't get captured once. I didn't get nicked once. So over that period of time, every day I'm nicking that amount of stuff I'm using. So you add it up, yeah, you know, over a year... It comes to more than a million. You sort and, of wonder
0: what kind of business person you could
2: have been if you
0: hadn't... I'm, no, not, jo- yeah. I'm not joking. No, like, you're right. but maybe I've involved. turned
2: that around today into like, you know, I'll never be a millionaire doing my job today. You know, I don't want to be a millionaire. It's not, I'm not about money today. You know, I need to live. I pay tax. I pay bills. I go on holiday. I live decently normally. But what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, the amount of money in the crime I committed, and as I said, even though the crime was petty, at the time I'll we got away of it for a very long time
0: <laughs> what was it like walking into Harrods and places like that easy
2: the absolutely the more front you had the more brazen you were the more easier it was and you know you, mainly old knit clothes like you know Ralph Lauren Armani boss Y3 and it was sold I mean I like guys fighting over it because they're so much money out of me if I took, if I phone them up they know try to wake a ching 500 quid in their pocket yeah because they sell it down the pub you know half price so I'll get a quarter for it, and they've got me by the bollocks because mm. I'm desperate. So I'm taking them two grands Now, two grand's worth of designer stuff, ain't a lot. You get Ralph Lauren shirts, that's 20 shirts. Yeah. That's that big in a pile, £100 each. I and pick t- them up and walk out the door of them. And were you... Uh,
0: was your heart beating out your chest at chest that point? Oh, yeah, I'm about it no,
2: I'm terrified. I'm, no, I'm full of fear. I'm not the fact of scared. I'm scared of getting caught. Because yeah. if I get caught, I get nicked. I'm in jail, I'm clucking. Yeah. I'm not scared of them. I'm scared of getting captured because so I'm not going to have the drug. So when you went into jail, you were withdrawing quite oh quickly. terribly I remember i done a sentence once three months of shoplifting six weeks I served I didn't sleep once in six weeks yeah oh, how was that much yes. that, that's how that big my habit was and they don't
0: give you like methadone or anything like four that. days
2: <laughs> now it's different in jails now for some mad reason if you get two years in jail they give you methadone for the whole sentence so you come out of a habit so what chance have you got of getting better that's fucking mm. nuts isn't it
1: and maintaining people's habits in prison. So, a question about addiction, mate. I'd actually like to t- talk about that yeah. a little bit as well, just to understand that a bit better. Do you ever feel now, even though you've been like ten years clean? Do you ever get that like urge even now, or is no. that just gone completely? Gone completely. How 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 long would you say after you stop using did that leave it takes,
2: you? It probably takes the, the you, you you have an obsession. Mm. You know, addiction is obsession. More that's what addiction is in my eyes. Mm. So what I had to do was when I got clean, I had to lose the obsession. So I had to look at that in a negative state is it's not going to do me any good, you know? And then within probably three, six months, within a year, I would sort of like got that year under my belt and it was like, do you know what? You know, I'm doing all right. One year's here. good, isn't one it? Year's good. A- one year's good. One year's, they say one year in recovery is the is the goldstone of turning, you know, probably staying clean. It's not like getting clean, it's staying clean. The nearest I get to using now is, is, is a dream. When you talk about this stuff with kids for five hours a day, when you do something for 23 years, it's hard to control your dreams. And in my dreams, same dream. I'm with the same people that are dead at the moment. You know, I'm, I'm in the same crack dens and you know, I never get to use it in my dream, but the paraphernalia, the going, the scoring, the getting it and all that. And, you know, and I to wake up and sweating and quite upset. And that was in the first few years of recovery. Now I'm used to it.
1: Do you have, um, like, do you have anything like a pint of lager, or anything, no any drinks. alcohol, nothing?
2: I've not had, the day I give out drugs, the day I give up alcohol. I've not had a, I've not had a drink or drug now for 10 years, five months. Mm -hmm. 29th of December. Do you you think like
1: cold turkey is like the long-term solution for... Like, do you know how some people drip feed themselves and then try and wean themselves? Yeah. Do you think cold turkey is the best depends form? depends
2: on a person because you, with alcohol, you can't just stop people drinking. You have to give them some like, Librium because mm. they, can go in, they can have shocks and go into like. They can know, die from it. They the... can die from it. Probably, you know, I'm not sure if you can die from withdrawal from heroin, but they're now so obviously, you know, weaning people slowly because <laughs> my habit, you know, is massive. Mm. And, you know, and I should go like from being on the street using four or five hundred pounds of drugs a day to going into in jail four days later, they stopped me method though, and I'm climbing the walls.
1: Climbing. I've, heard, I've heard them, uh, I was watching a programme by Paul Gascoigne yeah. and he said one of the ways they've tried to combat his addiction is to just swap it for other addictions that aren't as bad for him, so yeah. uh, he's almost totally addicted to sweets yeah. um, and he has to have like loads of sweets and that and uh,
2: but that's less of d- to evils, d- isn't it? I mean, like yeah. sweets is 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 legal, and it, you know, all sure. he's going to do is like yeah. you know probably rot his teeth. Whereas where <laughs> getting fat, yeah. yeah. But what I'm trying to say is is that is that I suppose with addiction, it's uh it's just looking for something a little bit more, isn't it? Addiction is more, but obviously I know when I take this, you know, my life goes out the window eating. Four Mars bars a day. Mm. I'm just going to get a bit plumping on. Some
1: people say that they like it's almost like an emptiness inside of them that before they have the drug that they find that they're sort of searching for something, and then when they have the drug, they they almost feel like, oh, that's it. That's what yeah. I've been looking for. And I guess did getting off the of drugs? Did you? Did you try and replace that feeling? Or do you think yeah, helping people is that? Stu-
2: when, 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 when I first got off drugs, my first sort of couple of years around, I was trying to find myself. They say, you know, your first five years of being clean, you're sort of like this newcomer, you're trying to discover stuff about yourself. Mm. Gambling roulette machines Mm. terrible doing my rent money and that you know I leave myself skin and then like obsession with the gym and I had a bad leg and I'm going down gym on a cross train and I got addicted to food Mm. and I'm like it's all over the gaff so over the period of time I found I got a balance and I didn't need to go down the gym and and go mad I I didn't need to eat loads of food I stopped gambling you know I stopped gambling five years ago so you know I got over, over a period of time I got to work out my little defects in my character and what was good and what wasn't good for me. make makes sense.
1: It sounds like you had to train yourself moderation yeah. almost. Like- I had to train my whole, my whole, this, everything I've got today is not just
2: about changing, it's new to me. Mm-hmm. The way I think, the way I feel, the way I behave. And I'm in a position today where my world's nice and small. I keep myself to myself. I've got a fabulous job. You know, I've got some people in my world that are great and wonderful. And and I'll be careful I don't go back to that. Just people relapse, see?
0: If we've been, if, it sounds a lot of the way that both of you are speaking, and maybe I'm speaking as well. Sounds like the way that we speak in our time. So we speak a lot of, you know, people being falling into drugs and those sort of things. What? Like, why? Do, why do you think that is? Like, do you, why do you think this is happening from your what, perspective? With, why, how did you fall into that life? Because it's just, quite an. It sounds
2: weird. Because 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 you know, I don't think no parent in their right mind wants their kids to take drugs. Because you know, drugs are drugs, aren't they? The word drug. You know... It's, it's a bad it's, word, isn't it? It's a bad word, yeah? yeah? And, you know, and is a disgusting word, isn't it? And you've got to remember, look, my work's so diverse. I've had, a, I've, I've had it with some weeks where I've gone to a primary school mm. and spoke to seven-year-olds yeah. and show them all the needles, show them the legs, yeah? I walk it down a little bit and people think, seven? I say, yeah, cause it might be the only opportunity I ever get, mm. yeah? Then the following day, I might be with a football club talking to some footballers. Then the following day, I'll be in a jail. The last day of the week... I've been a treatment center, a rehab. Yeah, speaking to seventy-year-old mm-hmm. addicts and alcoholics, pensioners that have had a lifelong battle with addiction to alcohol. So my job is to make sure at the beginning of the week, then primary school kids, seven-year-olds,
1: in sixty years' time, end up in rehab with a lifelong it, it, battle. It feels to me, and I think that you, what you do is fantastic. Yeah. I'm really proud of you, and you should be proud okay. of yourself. Um, it feels to me like how this happens, how we how we get from A to B, is almost like. You're either in the pub and you're having a pint, and you've got some problems in your life. And I think problems is where it usually seems to stem from is whatever stresses that you you're wound up about. Maybe someone's not well. You've got a you know relative who isn't well, or or you've maybe you're just depressed within yourself or whatever's going on. But you're trying to escape from that, mm-hmm. and you have a little something to start off with, maybe it may be a few beers or a few spliffs or whatever. And you're like, oh, well, because I've had a few of them, I'm sort of thinking less about that problem. And a lot of the time it's like, well, if I have a few more, I'll feel even less about it and then more and more. And, and, and that seems to be where it all sort of goes wrong for a lot of people. But if you're talking about this, the source of the issue, mm.
0: that's not necessarily the issue in all the countries in the world. Maybe because they don't have ready access to drugs and those sort hmm. of things. That does sound like a very, a quite un, not uniquely English idea of drugs, but
1: Western, I suppose. Yeah,
0: could you break that down even further and say, don't? It's that mindset which leads us towards going it, to the club, which leads it, us towards so all those.
1: The things. search of happiness is one of those things where we're told we're sort of lied to at a young age that you're always supposed to be happy, and I feel like if we just say to people sorry, not to be happy all the time, you know, you can be, sadness is going to happen throughout your life, and like Disney, like this Disney sort of dream, that everyone sold as a young, young child, even before you get a speak of them, it's bollocks, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think you have to be prepared a little bit better, even from such a young age, um, that life is going to have its, its valleys, and it's going to happen, and it's how you deal with them, that, instead of turning to stuff to take your mind off it, to face it head on. And I've been in some really fucking low times. Me, mate, I fucking swear to God, like I've had some conversations with myself, do you know what I mean? Where you thought, what the fuck is the point? Like I've been that low. And um, you've got to have those conversations and go through it and, and fucking face it and, and not always look for, this makes us feel better, I'll do this or that. Do you know what I'm saying? And not everyone is like that. And not every drug addict starts from that, but a lot of them do. No,
2: exactly. Uh. I think it's look what you said there, right? You said about talking. I mean, mental health now is a major problem. Mm. Depression, which is linked to mental health, is a major problem. Mm. And and you said no one's talking. You know, all these people want to just go and lock themselves away, isolate themselves, you know, and, and no one wants to engage anymore. And, you know, we're look, put on their phones.
1: Men and, are the worst for it, I feel. Probably. I feel like us men, women have to be, be a bit, they're just naturally a bit more chatty with each other. What's do you know, like, I'm not saying women don't bottle things up because they do, but men to talk about your feelings with another bloke tough it's a bit of an unusual thing you're like especially when you're blokey blokes it's like so, um.
2: I'm so vulnerable today I'm feeling <laughs> Who's because 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 what I've worked out is over the past few years I've done a lot of stuff about the ego yeah. and that pride and that ego right you know our ego wants to run the show wants to be the best at everything and mm. don't, don't don't want to be vulnerable because when you start <laughs> opening up to someone straight away you become vulnerable don't you yeah, yeah? and that's but that's what
1: friends are supposed to be there for but But sometimes
2: you don't want to lose face talking about his vulnerability and being insecure and all that it's like oh my man I shouldn't be talking about that when really you know it's okay to talk about anything because Mm -hmm. I've worked out over the past 10 years of me being well and getting better is I've talked to I've gone to groups certain groups in this program I work and I've started to talk about how I feel and it's okay to do that because you know the whole point of being a human is about we're full of emotion aren't we we run on emotion yeah so being able to talk to someone and get it off your chest and never, you know, and I mean, it's, I think it's extremely important. I think everyone's above
1: it, are we? Everyone should have someone in their lives, just at least one person who they can go to and say, be emotionally honest with. Aye, right, and, and 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 cut the bullshit. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Stop pretending like you're this person who you yeah. tell everyone else you are. Because there's who you are, to everyone, and then there's who that you really are. And you need at least one person who you don't have to fear that judgment of, and you can just be like, this is how I fucking feel.
2: Yeah. And this is me. But the problem is people ain't not doing that. No. People are terrified to get vulnerable today mm-hmm. and they want to just look, you know, society's become quite
1: um, antisocial, is not it? It's quite funny because we're so connected social media-wise, but we're probably... Yeah, that's a
2: text, isn't it? Like, we're just you know, as
1: disconnected as as we've ever been yeah. uh, emotionally, I would imagine.
2: I remember when I was a kid, you know, in the streets, when I was, you know, in, 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 in 69, 70s, you know, you had a street and everyone had each other's door keys and doors were left open or on a bit of string. today, easier to today, deal there's metal gates on people's doors. Yeah. They've not just got a front door, they've got a metal grill on the front of it because they're terrified and society's become quite a violent place. Bus drivers now encased in perspex. You're going to petrol garages and they like banks, you know, and it's like, you've got traffic orders, knife-proof fests on. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, anything antisocial, knife crime, drugs, gangs, anything, violence for alcohol is on the increase. So we try and fold the clock and think in 10 years time, you know, is it going to be 50 to 100 kids being stabbed to death a year? Or, Someone somewhere with a bit of authority are going to wake up and make it law compulsory. If you work with children from an age of a certain age and you don't give them knife crime education, then you're not allowed to work with children. It's a law. And then what you do is by doing that, we stabilize or decrease a little bit the situation. Instead of it, look, the stabilization or decrease is far better than an increase, isn't it?
0: It's definitely a start. Let's put it that way. It's right a
2: start, it. yeah. Yeah. I'll put it this way over the past 10 years, if every adult would work with every kid, would give them knife crime education, we have less stabbing today. Fact. Yeah. Fact. But because that's not happened, we've got this explosion of knives on their street mm. and with drugs and drug dealing and gangs and yeah.
1: It's about having more people who are trying to make things better instead of doing nothing.
2: Or the people that won't allow us, someone like me or anyone else who does my sort of mm. work, to go and talk to the kid.
0: I do think there is, there's something that's probably really important to say for a lot of
2: people as well is that there's
0: maybe there's not one blanket rule for everyone. Definitely. You know not. I mean? yeah. And I think that is a huge problem. And you've spoken about that in education yeah. as well. It does seem like it's like, one system and that just seems to fit everyone. And so we can sit here and talk about our own um, solutions. And I do think you offer a great solution. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, Everyone's got to go down their own path, and they have all got to find their own way. Of course, you just hope that you sort of give them the best way. Of course, there's
1: going to be people who you can't. You almost you could talk to them till they were blue in the face. One hundred percent. And there's just nothing you can do. If I go and
2: speak to five, six hundred kids in the one assembly, two assemblies, and I stop one of them messaging me tonight, I'll put that picture on later, and they say you've inspired me. That's one more than what it was yesterday. Yeah, you got me. So for me, it's a numbers game. When I don't put these numbers out there saying 50,000, I could quite easily speak to 100,000. That's 100 days jobs, 1,000 kids a day. It's not a problem. Because the more we educate, then the more young minds we change for the better. We never stop knife crime. We never stop gangs. We never stop violence for alcohol. We never stop crime, ever. Mm -hmm. Anyone says they're going to stop it, they've got to suck up their bottom. But we can reduce it or stabilise it. Mm -hmm. And that's all we can do. That's all we can do. We can't do any more than what we do. You know, that's all we can do. And as I said, in my eyes some of most dangerous people in our communities are not criminals they're not drug dealers, not gang members they're adults that won't allow anyone to speak to their kids in their care about what's going on in the world yeah. they are dangerous individuals in my eyes uh.
1: any questions Lawrence anything else uh,
2: where can people go find you if they want to oh yeah um, well ww.paulhanford.com. I've got a website don't be eating when you go on there because it might put you off your food maggots, <laughs> I found that out this morning <laughs> the maggots and the blood um, and Paul Hannaford, Instagram, Twitter, where all my feedback comes. Yeah. You know, I'll do loads on social media and I'll, I'll leave here this afternoon. I'll post a picture in a minute and I'll be up till 10 o'clock and the kids will be driving mad tonight. And uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time on social media. But the good thing is, is, is the kids get a chance to go away and look at, you know, because sitting in the assembly and me telling a the story, they're like, wow. But then when they go home, they can relive it all. Reinforce it. Yeah, and yeah, I get a lot of parents contact me as well, you know, thanking me. I mean, what kid, what parent in their right mind don't want their kid to come home from a bad school and say, you know what, mum, I've been really inspired today to stay away from... Drugs, gangs, knife crime, I've met this guy, he's told us a story. Because the kids, what they do is, you see, when they look at my injuries, they anyway, I can go and do a talk, but when they actually see the horrific injuries, the blood, the guts. Yeah.
1: You know, Sometimes you just need that extra bit of graphic but, yeah, sort you know, of visualisation. Kind of tape,
2: you know, it's that, wow, well, and I've mm. still got my injuries 10 years later and everything. Wow, you know, he started smoking a bit of wee when he was like 13. You know, this is what happened. This is what happened to me. Could it happen to me?
0: Yeah.
2: You know? But yeah, I've got no magic wand. A few wise words. You know, if I had a magic wand, I'd probably go around the motorbike tapping every kid of it. You're going to be this, you're going to be that, you know. But <laughs> but as I said, I've got no magic wand and, and, I, and I'm grateful, you know. It's nice coming here today. There might be someone watching this that works with kids and they might phone me tomorrow and if they do and I get to speak to the kids, you play a part in it.
1: Yeah? Fingers crossed, mate. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank really you. appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's all right, Paul. Make sure you go and check them out. I'll put the links in the description below. If you've enjoyed this, hit that like button, stay subscribed and we'll see you later.